and all to a special Come On, Get Happy episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics in association with SpiderManCrawlspace.com. This is episode 27 of the show, and my name is John Wilson. Episode 27 is a cube, three times three times three, and we won't get another one of those until 64, which is four times four times four, so that's a little bit exciting to me and to exactly two and a half other people in the listening audience. You need to go outside more often. <laughs> and before we introduce our special guest for this episode, I do want to remind everyone out there in listener land that Amazing Spider-Man Classics is brought to you each month by Roll to Play, your online source for games and gaming accessories. Now through spring, Roll to Play is offering a 10% off deal on all games related to the Settlers of Catan franchise. One of their products is the Settlers of the Stone Age, where you are a member of the early branch of Homo Sapiens, and you are struggling to spread your branch out across the world, building skills as you go. You'll need new hunting techniques to protect you from dangers, warm clothes to cross the ice deserts of the north, and boats to settle in Australia. So come join in the adventure that is the dawn of humankind. And that is available at www.roll2play.com. And the store also has a page on Facebook if you search Roll to Play, all one word, spelled with the number two. And with me today are my two good friends and cohorts in comics, Donovan Grant. Hi, are you happy? Because I'm happy. <laughs> and Josh Bertoni. I'm on cloud nine. Betty Brant is in Chicago, and I have no not a care in the world. <laughs> today we will be talking about Amazing Spider-Man 39 and 40. Featuring our new artist, Johnny Ringading Ramita, and the return of Spider-Man's arch-nemesis, the Green Goblin. And to help us take a look at this story, returning by popular demand from one of our most downloaded episodes ever, I give you J.R. Fettinger. Yes, and uh, since this is the uh, Come On, Get Happy episode, I'm happy to be this podcast's very own Dr. Feelgood. So uh, I am uh, ready to go. So if it was if it was one of the most popular downloaded podcasts, what, uh, what you had three as opposed to two downloaded this time? Gee whiz. It was uh, four, actually. <laughs> oh, marvelous. I, I tell you. I this, downloaded you know. twice. <laughs> uh, well, well, crap. You threw it off. Oh, I can I, I can I can take that to the bank now. I can go I can go back to Brad Douglas and demand more money. So uh, awesome. Anything to pad out your pocketbook there, Jr. You got the check I sent you, right, for being here tonight. Yeah, but uh, the but the note that said don't try to cash it for another six months was kind of uh, a little bit disappointing. But uh, well, life of a college student, man. All I can say. <laughs> Uh, well, you do have a lot of fans among the listeners to the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast and the vis- people who visit that site. Um, we did have a huge response to that last episode you did with us. Lots of new listeners are here, and it seems a lot of those people stuck around. So you should know that you are loved out there in listener land. You, you, you really? I- <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Because the minute I, I let out the joke about, oh, you mean three people downloaded it, I thought, oh, they're going to take that as a slam or something. But uh, I was just uh, I was just thinking, God, you know, I can't be uh, – I'm just some middle-aged dude, you know, who uh, you know who tries to escape from the humdrum of his normal life by uh, by going into the, uh, the world of Spider-Man. And uh, I can't imagine that anybody would be possibly interested in what I have to say. But, you know, it's, it's always nice to know that some people are just as delusional as me. Maybe, maybe I have my own little cult just like normal. Norman does. So. <laughs> Everybody dressing up with uh, JR tattoos on the backs of their necks. 
Well, and uh, having, uh, you know, carrying around some uh, Metamucil and Pepto-Bismol to help him get him through the day. So Right. I'm wearing mine right now. <laughs> so I did but say... But I won't tell you where. That's my secret. <laughs> right. So I did say that this is a special come on, get happy episode of the show. The reason for this is that Steve Ditko left the book on a whole lot of downer notes. Everybody was pissed off at everybody else. And as soon as John Romita starts writing, the first thing he does is apologize to everybody. I mean, Flash apologizes to Peter. Harry apologizes to Peter. Norman captures Peter and puts him in bondage. But, you know, aside from that, a lot of people are really happy now in this issue. So uh, that, that's he a good thing. wondering who the Green Goblin was, and he's like... Don't worry, I'll show you. Just take a seat. Here I am. I'm Norman Osborn. <laughs> but before we get into the books, let's talk a little bit about where our new artist has been before he joined us with issue 39. Johnny Ramita has quite a history with comics before he started drawing <laughs> Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Um, he uh, actually started – he actually started, had career as a comic book artist started, you know, pretty much around World War II-esque. He was actually doing some Captain America's. And if you look at the Captain America pencils he was doing, it looks literally nothing like his current stuff, or even the stuff earlier than this. You won't really recognize his style until he starts getting into the romance comics, and that's what he was becoming well-known for. And um, in a way, it really endears him to Spider-Man, because a lot of people's faces and a lot of the women's faces are kind of his signature. Betty Brant in um, issue 40, which we'll get to later on, which to me just screams like romance comics era John Romita. After that, he was on the Daredevil book, obviously, which we all know, and we covered that in a couple of episodes ago in um, the Daredevil Spider-Man crossover, 16 and 17, I believe. And uh, according to lore, those were tryout issues. It was either those were tryout issues for him to come onto Spider-Man, or fan reaction was was positive for him doing Spider-Man that he was brought on after Dicko left. And uh, that's pretty much where we are right now with... Uh, Jazzy John Romita Sr. In my mind, it's always that he brought the curves to the women that Ditko had at times, but maybe wasn't necessarily as vivacious about as Johnny <laughs> So we definitely have an increase of the sex in the uh, in the comics from this point forward. Not, you know, yeah. actual sex, just, you know. Well, I don't know. The Green Goblin's going to get some pretty soon. He, well, he does, you know... <laughs> He and Peter do a lot of undressing in front of each other, as we're going to see. So it could get really interesting really fast there. Amazing Spider-Man number 39 probably is one of the most important issues in the character's history for, I mean, the reason that you you know you were discussing uh, the entry of John Romita Sr. into the uh, into the character's history, uh, because like you mentioned, uh, the world of Ditko was a very angry, bitter world where everybody was sniping at each other. Right. And uh, plus, it was starting to reflect a lot of Ditko's very cynical worldview, and uh, Stan was having to kind of work around uh, Ditko's very, very twisted worldview. And uh, with Romita being obviously a very different personality, Stan kind of uh, this kind of allowed Stan free reign to uh, to really um, work on the uh, the soap opera elements of Spider-Man and. Um, just uh, it, it's there was a, there was a statement, and I mentioned it I think in a recent uh, Spider-Man crawlspace podcast because it was something I read in, a, in an essay many many years ago. Probably Stan could not have had a co-creator other than Steve Ditko, but 
it was it took John Romita Senior to make Spider Man as popular as he was, right? Uh, working together with Stan, so it was so really it's it is, it's a very significant issue in in comic book history, really, because this is where I think Spider Man starts to uh, Spider Man starts to take off in popularity. It just adds an entirely different feel to the book, and mm-hmm. almost like that was chapter one, and here's Spider Man. Exactly. You know, as far it's as the, 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 changing James Bonds. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, right, right from the this like this is probably the most iconic cover in ASM's title we've hit yet, and this this goes on for decades and decades to just be reprinted and done as models and things, and this iconic cover is just you know a prelude to like the important history that we were, me and Josh were talking the other day. This lasts like the entire the rest of the entire character's history, uh, mind wipes or otherwise. Right. You know, I, and uh, you know, it's. I mean, obviously, uh, this is one of those, those instances where you know, S- Spider-Man was was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, uh, but uh, definitely John Romita Jr. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to confuse. I'm going to say senior and junior interchangeably, uh, but uh, John Romita Sr., though not a co-creator, definitely deserves a uh, an asterisk as far as the. Uh, you know, as far as a, a a place in Spider-Man's history, as far as making the character what he was, much more so than Jack Kirby. I know there's there's uh, there's been there's some stories out there that try to give Jack Kirby uh, credit for uh, Spider-Man's creation and popularity, right. but uh, no, I mean there's you know Kirby uh, really belongs nowhere near it. I mean basically it's it's Stan and Steve, and then uh, then basically uh, you could call John Romita Senior. Uh, Spider-Man's stepfather uh, after the after Stan and Steve's divorce. <laughs> so. <laughs> I said on the podcast, Kirby literally says that he came up with the idea of Spider-Man and then handed it to Steve Dicko because he was feeling generous, which just disgusts me. Well, there's a um, Jack. I I, I tell you, I um, some of some of his claims. Um, I mean, the, the only claim that may have some merit in fact from what it from the reading i've done is that jack may have very well come up with the name spider-man um i mean stan has told different stories about where spider-man came from uh it is possible because joe simon had a character called spider-man at one time and it was changed to the uh, the fly afterwards so i mean there is there is some you know reason to believe that kirby may very well remembering that old because joe simon was his partner at one time wasn't he didn't the two of them co-create yes. uh, captain america yes they did uh, and so spider-man was a, a joe simon character back in the 50s so it is possible that kirby brought that name uh stan denies it but you know again stan's memory is not particularly reliable either but um, as far, but you know everything else though. I mean, is definitely Ditko or uh, or Stan. I mean, the artistic style. I mean, how Peter looked and how Aunt May and Uncle Ben looked and how um, you know how Norman Osborn and the Sandman looked. I mean, that's all Ditko. I mean, none of that is Kirby. Right. So anyway, kind of got <laughs> kind of got off tangent. <laughs> no, that's that's what we want to talk about before we before we go into it is where all this has gone and came from. But if we've if we've covered all that, then we can go ahead and dive into the books. First up tonight, we have Amazing Spider-Man number 39, which was released on May 10th, 1966, with a cover date of August. And the person telling us of the amazing events within is Joshua Bertoni. 
Hello, yes. All right. And our iconic cover, we have the Green Goblin. Uh, because this is our Come On Get Happy episode, he's got a big old grin on his face, probably <laughs> because of what is in his uh, right hand. It's a rope, and attached to that rope is a tied-up uh, Peter Parker with his clothes ripping off, revealing his Spider-Man costume underneath. As His hands are saying jazz hands, and his face <laughs> is saying constipation. Exactly. But, uh, but but either way, it looks like he wants to get out of there, whether to you know jazz hands or something else. And on the bottom, we have the banner: another Marvel first, Spider Man and the Green Goblin, both unmasked. I, I imagine the in the in a world guy from the movie trailer saying that for some reason. Uh, this is all Ramita, first Ramita cover. But you know, for those of you who missed Dicko, you can still uh, look in the top left hand corner. And see that little Marvel Comics group box with the little Dicko Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, he'll be there for a, for a while. Yes. Yeah, I've I've told this story before on the uh, Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast, but uh, um, this was one of the this was one of those issues. I mean, I do have an original Amazing Thirty Nine. I didn't go back and get too many of the old original issues, but uh, back when I was a struggling college student uh, many years ago. Uh, I saved up the, the, the vast sum of $4.50 and uh, went to the book broker in Evansville, Indiana and bought a, a uh, probably, a, I don't know what it would be defined. It's not, it's not, it's better than very good, but it's probably not quite fine uh, condition of Amazing Spider-Man number 39. And uh, I was, uh, I was um, beside myself uh, having this original issue of the, uh, the revelation of the Green Goblin's identity. Uh, and, and like I've said, uh, I, um, was so ashamed of the, the ghastly sum that I spent. My father asked me if I got anything at the comic book store, uh, that day. And I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to tell him that I'd spent four and a half dollars on a comic book. So that, uh, <laughs> unfortunately that dates this old man quite a bit. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's, uh, and I never did get, I never did get an original copy of number 40 because the, uh, the, um, the broker, uh, their, their copy was uh, had a torn cover. Uh, by the time that I finally did, uh, you know, have a job and wind up with some money, the uh, speculators had uh, driven the uh, the cost of all the old comics to a ridiculous highs. So I never did get an original copy of number forty. So, but I still have number thirty nine. So good, good, good. All right, and our opening splash page has the title: "How Green Was My Goblin," which okay. apparently is. Not that green at all, because the word goblin is the only thing in that title that isn't green. It's purple, or at least in my reprint it is. I have it all green in the original scan. Black uh, and white. Okay. Donovan has uh, black and white. He doesn't believe in colored comics. Donovan's colorblind. But yeah, in the Marvel Masterworks, I guess they thought they were being ironic by making the letters for goblin purple. With everything <laughs> well, else to, green. To match his costume. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, well, anyway... You could have bring back my goblin to me. Yeah, that they they already did that. I'm just saying, if you want to go back Both to that, titles made no sense. <laughs> well, Stan prepares us with his little blurb. Attention, all web spitters, be prepared for more startling surprise developments than any you've ever seen in any single Spidey spectacular before. We went all out on this one, so buckle your seatbelts and away we go. The Green Goblin is flying on his uh, glider. He's just finished uh, today's edition of the Bugle, which he doesn't want to take it home. He throws it into he throws it just into the sky because, frankly, it does, doesn't look like the Bugle has much to talk about today because their top headline is Spider-Man's identity still a mystery. 
And in other news, the sky is still blue. Yes, that's not a headline. That's a status quo. (laughs) So, uh, hey, guess what? Yeah, Barack Obama is still the president. Depending on who's listening to us. Oh yeah, I guess (laughs) if you're listening, hello, future people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if you're listening, when um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is our president, yes. The Green Goblin uh, tells the readers or the newspaper or anyone in particular that happens to be listening that by now that web-crawling weasel must have forgotten all about the Green Goblin. Therefore, this is the perfect time for me to strike and to get revenge that my soul is hungering for. (laughs) And we have our credits. And uh, it says script, smiling Stan Lee, art, jazzy Johnny Romita. Wow. Stan's sometimes a big dick in the letters pages, you know, but now he's like calling Steve like some other name. I don't know. <laughs> it's not Steve anymore. We just we just talked. We, did you fall asleep during the intro? We have a new artist. I, I, I went out to get a pizza and everything, but yeah, it's like this isn't Stan egging us on. Okay. Inks, Mighty Mike Okay, now this is a masterwork, so hopefully my I still have the same credits as you guys. But Inks, Mighty, Mikey, Mickey, Mickey DeMeo, DeMeo, lettering, adorable Artie Semek. It's still Artie, I know. Well, the Green Goblin, like I said, he's he's talking to nobody, but what he isn't talking about is how noticeably bulkier he is. Uh, he says out. that, yeah, he says that he's been waiting long enough. It is now time to strike. He will find Spider-Man's secret identity and reveal it to the world. Psychic blind spot, be damned. He was too overconfident before, he says, and that's the only reason why he lost. Not because his previous plans involved luring Spider-Man to Hollywood and hitting him on the head with a rock. As for Spider-Man, he's swinging through the city and worrying about none of these things. Is he worrying about Aunt May? Surprisingly, no. Not yet, but give it a few pages. For once, he's concerned... Can yeah, I backtrack just a minute? Yeah, uh, on uh, page two, there's a couple of things uh, I want to bring up. First of all, uh, Norman is, uh, or well, actually, we don't know who he is yet. Uh, oh, I just blew that spoiler, didn't I? Uh, yeah, the Green Goblin Sally is, Apple. the Green Goblin, like you said, talking to nobody, but he's showing us his two big pumpkins. And uh, he says, my little bag of trips, tricks is fully loaded. My stun bombs are more potent than ever. Now, notice how large these pumpkin bombs are. And notice how small his little purple purse is. And I'm thinking, okay, now where is he putting these pumpkin bombs? I mean, do I really want to know? And this is you seen Mary Poppins? This is <laughs> not in the last thirty years I haven't. But anyway, uh, so anyway, this this will come up again later when when Norman brings out yet another device, and you're wondering now where did he pull that from? Okay, and then the next panel, he's feverishly working on his goblin glider, but he says, I've modified my rocket-powered flying broomstick so that it's faster and more maneuverable than ever. That's fine, Norman, but where is your broomstick? I mean, we saw what your broomstick looked like in issue number 14. This is a glider you're working on. So what if you've modified your flying broomstick? You're obviously not using it. Big deal. (laughs) If he would have so, used the fine broomstick, then the outcome of these two issues might have been better for him. And, well, and uh, obviously, uh, number issue number 122 may have had a different ending as well. But uh, <laughs> well, 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 what, what does he say in issue? It's either issue 14 or uh, 17. He says, aha, I've modified my flying broomstick. Now there will be no fatal error. Yeah, no chance of fatal error. Yeah, but so anyway. Well, so. Now he did. He does actually end up calling this a broomstick again whenever it dies at the end of forty during the fight. So evidently, 
he doesn't know when a broomstick is no longer a broomstick. He's a rich guy. He like <sighs> he, he hires other people to like worry about things like broomsticks. Or this could simply be Stan again, Stan again, forgetting that uh, you know that he keeps switching Norman's uh, Norman's hardware on him, and uh, you know going back to the old Peter Palmer miscue. So anyway, did did not mean to in- interrupt your uh, your narration. Oh no, there, feel, feel free that that was gold. Well, there's also the whole point about how he's telling us he's modified this thing whenever he modified it before issue 17 already. Well, now it goes up to 11. It's over 9,000. Throughout the entire issue and this issue, all he talks about is, um, I, I, I didn't lose last time. I was overconfident. Now I'm sure I will win. The outcome is already <laughs> I'll win. I'll win. I'll win. And uh, I got more on this later, but he nearly does. But there's one pathetic reason why he doesn't, and it's uh, – Because we'll, we'll he doesn't shoot him in the head? <laughs> Well, this for all of you Incredibles fans. Although we haven't gotten to it quite to the worst part, these two issues are probably the worst case of supervillain monologuing that you're going to see in a comic. Oh yeah, God yes. <laughs> Especially like really getting ahead of myself. Aha! I might as well set you free right now. <laughs> if Jr. were to recite all the dialogue in this book in his Norman Osborn voice, he would not have a voice by the end of issue forty. I don't think I'd make it halfway through issue thirty-nine after, particularly <laughs> after getting through this this uh, this two-page soliloquy to uh, to actually start the tide the issue. So another uh, note is that um, the panel four there, the big old close-up grin, that is actually a piece of art that will show up in the animated series. I've seen that a lot. Is that yeah. the one with pink background? Yeah, I think they give it either pink or very colored backgrounds, but. Um, but yeah, it, whenever they do a close-up on the Goblin during the Green Goblin episodes, it's this picture. He looks like the Grinch in that, in that cartoon with like his like eyelashes and everything. Oh yeah, well they're sticking out right there. It's pretty funny. Yeah, him and Maria Hill are like going in all the houses, stealing all the presents. And um, his motivation here, he he is at this point purely revenging on Spider-Man for getting in his way all those previous issues. Have we had a villain before that was this determined to learn Spider-Man's secret identity? No one's cared. Doctor no Octopus for like three seconds. Ah, yeah, that was just to humiliate him for for like three seconds. He's like, now let's take off his mask. Oh, never mind. Betty's getting away. I must go after her. Yeah, but I mean, why would you go after Betty if she's getting away? That's like a blessing. Speaking of blessings, as we've said, uh, Peter is not worrying about Aunt May for once. He's concerned about his own health and well-being, so he decides to go to Dr. Bromwell for a checkup, but not before giving a janitor a nervous breakdown. As Peter's leaving a maintenance closet that he uh, went into from the outside window, Hey, son, no one's allowed in that broom closet. What you doing in there? To which I got it. No one's allowed in the broom closet. Like, really? Is your world, like, that small that, like, you have to hold on to your authority over that? Broom closet? I thought it was a waiting room. I should have known it was the wrong place, though. (laughs) There weren't any of last year's magazines on the table. I was here all the time. I didn't see anyone go in that room. How in the heck? Poor guy. I know what's puzzling him. Yeah, you do! (laughs) Wonder what eats. (laughs) How did Peter get in there? Is this another one of those broom closets with a bay window? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, all comic book buildings must have them. Well, didn't didn't you see this, didn't you see the early part of Spider Man Two, where uh, he he when he was delivering his pizzas? I mean, he came out uh, he came out of the janitor's closet with a uh, with a uh, half dozen or more pizzas uh, to a uh, 
bubblegum chomping Emily Dachanel. So every every generous closet has a, you know, a bird's eye view of the city with with its own window. Everyone knows that. And Clark Kent never like knocks over all the mops while he's changing to Superman. (laughs) He's very coordinated. (laughs) So Peter wonders to himself what the guy would say, the janitor, if he, if Peter told him that he swung through the window on his web. Irony count one. Yeah, irony count. Like, so I wonder what he'd say if I told him about my web. And Peter wonders a very similar thing the next page. But regardless, Peter actually keeps on wondering what people would say to the point of annoyance. Uh, so he goes in for his checkup to Dr. Bromwell. And Dr. Bromwell says, your blood pressure is fine, Pete. You've got the pulse of a superhero. Uh, irony count two. And, nope. and Peter wonders in that same panel, wondered what he'd say if I hadn't taken off my Spidey suit and he saw it peeping out at him from under my shirt. Number three. Stop wondering things, Peter. Stop. <laughs> he'd probably say, what kind of dumbass wears a full-body spandex costume under a long sleeve shirt and a sweater vest? <laughs> probably what he'd be thinking. In July. Um, did you notice that he shows up at the doctor's office and just goes right in without an appointment? This would never happen today. Either that or Dr. Bromwell is the worst doctor in New York City and doesn't have any patients. Well, Dante is his only patient, and that's enough for him to operate his entire practice. He gets more. Well, not only that, but he doesn't have to show his Blue Cross or Blue Shield card or anything, or uh, you know, proof of insurability or anything like that. No, of course not. As long as he doesn't go near the janitor's closet, because no one's allowed in there. Okay, well, since Peter hasn't worried about Aunt May yet, Dr. Bromwell fixes that by telling him that if anything exciting happens, Aunt May is going to die. Luckily, you both lead quiet, peaceful lives, which is what your aunt needs now more than anything else. Irony count four. four. That's right. I guess this is what they mean on TV when they say check with your doctor to make sure you're healthy enough for sexual activity. Um, Or... Poor Aunt May can't take any excitement, you know, so uh, wonder how she survived uh, her relationship with uh, John Jameson Sr. Then later on, if she's well, so fragile, that, uh, can't take any excitement. When she was doing John Sr., she, they got caught by Peter. Wouldn't that be like a double shock? <laughs> she likes uh, it when people watch. <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> wow. She came before he came? Never mind. And what are we up to? <laughs> what are, what are we up to with irony count, by the way? Either four uh, or five. Four. I thought there were two in the doctor's office, and there's this one. Was there one before the doctor's office? Uh, the, one with, the one with like the secretary will be five. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, as Peter's walking out, the secretary slash nurse, for some reason the nurse is doing what a secretary would do, or I don't know, but <laughs> she thinks, it must be wonderful to be his age, no troubles, no responsibilities, none of the worries of older folk. Oh, if she only knew. <laughs> so this starts. So that's irony count. That's irony count five or six. Uh, and we have we have we have some more unintentional irony. Uh, so this makes Peter go on an angst walk, as he so often do, and he angst walks all the way to ESU, where he thinks, "I've never thought of it this way before, but she's my only relative. She's all the family I have." What? You've never thought about that before? I've just read that, like, every two issues. Yeah. Well, maybe he's thinking of extended family now. Like, if Aunt May died, he wouldn't have any cousins on the side of the family he could go to. Right, because Aunt May doesn't have any cousins. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Well, not for another 600 issues, at least, until John Jameson Sr. finds the Rileys. So, anyway. They're all actors and actresses and robots. And (laughs) so, 
power of love. With the power of love, right. So he, so he's angsting. He walks right past Flash Gwen and an unnamed ESU guy, which, oh, yeah, it's on now. They are going to be so ticked. Like, last issue, you know, Gwen was all mad at him, Flash. They were all ready to fight him. Let's see what they have to say now. There's Peter Parker. Now remember, Flash, we all decided to act friendly to him. Come on, get happy. Okay, well, let's see what Flash has to say. Hi, Pete. How's it going? Seen anything of Harry Osborn? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, unnamed ESU guy. I mean, he's probably got a snide remark. <laughs> Looks to me like you're wasting your time. Parker's not fine. Wow, that's surprisingly friendly for unnamed ESU guy. Usually he's a lot more uh, vulgar than that. <laughs> so, yes, uh Everyone's wondering why Peter's walking past them with angst and ignoring them. So right off the bat in John Romita's first issue, we're already repeating plot lines from eight issues ago. Now, but do you think this is – isn't this one of the last times this happens? Um, I, no. No? Not really. Okay. Because I, I was wondering if it was like an example of Romita like emulating Ditko to make this transition smoother, but that he would move away from it. Because I don't remember him being so ignoring everyone and making them hate him later it, it happened when he graduated college well, that's, that's a long that's, way away that's, that's like um but it's not I mean, a, it's not a habitual thing after this um because every other day at college he's been ignoring people and they've been hating him yeah this is the last time like like they, they finally get rid of this stupid gay okay so it's not it's 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 a rare thing after this all i can say is if gwen is anything like we remember her Peter's just ignored her. She's got to be pissed. So let's see what... I just don't understand him. Sometimes he's as friendly as a puppy. Okay, now that's just out of character. Come on, get happy! Yeah. <sighs> While Peter is having a walk of angst, Harry is having a car ride of angst with his father. Well, here's where I get out. Thanks for the lift, Dad! <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, he wouldn't talk like Willem Dafoe here. He would talk normal. Uh-huh. You know, he wouldn't go, ah! You know. Like that, so. <laughs> Why are you using your Green Goblin voice, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, you're scaring me. Is anything wrong, Dad? You hardly said a word all the way from the house to here. Wrong! I'll tell you what's wrong, you dumbass. Who walks around wearing a bow tie and a plaid jacket these days? I mean, look how I'm dressed. A suit, a white shirt, and a black tie like I could work for IBM or something. You look like you're trying to audition for Jack Benny or something. Who dresses like that anymore? You're no (laughs) son of mine. You never understood my fashion choices. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I mean, who dresses? I. It's like, uh, you know, Harry. You know, it's just funny. Harry wonders what you know. What's wrong? You know, what's wrong? Why do people treat me this way or whatever? I mean, look how you're dressed. Oh boy, he's stuck ten years ago. You know, I guess I could say there's nothing wrong. Did you want me want me to give you a lift or deliver a speech on the way? Uh, I didn't mean to get you angry. I was just wondering. Well, don't wonder. It cost me a fortune to keep you in college, so try thinking about your studies once in a while. And it makes sense because he is, like, in, in goblin mode in the sense that, you know, he's not amnesic yet. Like, like we, me and Josh talked on Close Light Chronicles on, how, like, the difference between him as Norman Osborn and, and him when Norman Osborn doesn't know he's the Green Goblin. So it, it would actually make sense for him to use this hilarious voice. Except for an internal monologue. 
Yes. <laughs> That's true. Of course, he's always angry. It doesn't matter, you know, whether he remembers he's a goblin or not. Well, no, I mean, he does kind of turn nice and cuddly there after that massive electrical shock. But, uh, but yeah, he's even though he's not necessarily a goblin, he's still he's still an angry, annoying sob. So. Well, Harry decides to save gas and the environment by continuing his drive of angst to making it a walk of angst, but his angst walk is so focused that he completely tunes out Gwen, Flash, and yes, even random ESU guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. So Peter notices, never saw Harry so quiet. Normally he'd have tossed a dozen insults my way by now. What's the matter, Harry? Anything wrong? Aren't you feeling well? Oh, yeah. You know, now we remember Harry and Peter's history. Harry's going to chew his head off now. I'm okay, Parker. And since when is it any of your business whether or not I... Come on, get happy! Oh, forget it. I didn't mean to snap at you. <laughs> wow. Something's really bugging him. He's almost acting human. So then Harry's like, uh, my dad's a jerk. Peter's like, huh, well, let me one-up you. <laughs> Your dad may be a jerk, but my dad's dead. I'm an orphan. <laughs> I love this game. You think you have bad drama? Listen to my bad drama. I play this game all the time with people. You know, and uh, earlier in the um, – and whether or, whether or not Stan actually meant it this way or not, but it actually is kind of interesting because Harry says – you know, uh, we were always real pals till a few years ago. Then he started to change. I mean, this is an example of Harry being in denial. Uh, denial, which pretty well <laughs> he's been in. He, he was in for uh, virtually his entire life, I guess, until he quote-unquote died. And then I guess things became clearer to him. But as we find out uh, later on, uh, you know, he and Norman were never pals. And uh, Harry, was just, uh, Harry was just kidding himself and thinking that Norman was ever a good father. So anyway, well, not, not, but, not to, to jump the gun, but I will, but like, wasn't it sort of like, uh, like Norman thought he was being a good father and Harry just wished that Norman would spend time with him. But I, I guess it is like a conflict of interest, whether it's a difference, like, like in the next issue, he talks about, uh, you know, Norman, uh, hallucinates that he gave all Harry, all this stuff. So Norman thought he was a good father and Harry just wanted to spend time with him. So I, I suppose it is like him den- denying it, but it, it's like different between Norman yelling at him and Norman just, you know, not being around with him. No, Norman Norman doesn't have. I mean, it show it de- demonstrates that Norman doesn't have a clue as to what it takes to be a good father, uh, and. Um, you know, but again, maybe we're, we're maybe we're jumping the gun on that. But I just wanted to bring up that you know, because bring up the point that uh, you know, even though Harry says they were once pals, I mean, it's pretty apparent they never really were. Harry just so desperately wanted that to be true that he's kind of c- constructed this little fantasy. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that in more detail later. He used to use a baseball bat to beat my bike to death. He used to impregnate all my girlfriends. Now he barely impregnates any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of girlfriends of Harry that uh, Norman will impregnate, Gwen is watching uh, from the sidelines, <laughs> not angry at all, thinking, if Peter Parker becomes one of our crowd, it'll be just wonderful for me. And Flash Thompson, uh, even he's getting into the come on, get happy spirits. He, as he thinks about Peter Parker, he's either a real weak sister or a lot more man than we ever thought he was. Come on, get happy. Flash uses a lot of really weird, out-of-date phrases. He calls Peter a Dutch uncle. In the last page, he says, now Harry's making with the I don't know you from Adam bit. I mean... Now, I actually looked up Dutch uncle because I wasn't sure. So here's a scoop on Dutch uncles. Because, you know, uncles 
generally have the reputation for being indulgent and permissive, well, a Dutch uncle is the opposite, giving firm critical advice for the sake of like you know educating all the youngins. Uh, it had come about with a lot of other Dutch-related insults in the wars between England and Holland in the 16th and 17th centuries. So, yeah, if you're a whore, then you're a Dutch widow. Um, if you're a – well, there are others, but I won't go into them. Lots of Dutch insults out there. Sounds like wow. Steve so, in other words, Flash is so dumb he doesn't know what he doesn't even know uh, uh, the uh, the cliches that he's using what they yeah, mean because it doesn't really so. apply to Peter. Peter's not Flash being stern. Flash is like Biff Tannen. He's like make like a tree and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stanley takes this time to assure us that we're not reading Tom Brown's School Days, which I figured from all the irony. I looked that up too. Have yeah, you ever read Tom Brown's School Days. I haven't read it, but I, I have heard of it, and I know that they've like that. There's been a few movies adapted from it. There was a 1940 movie that Stan probably saw, although I'm not sure that 1966 comic readers would have known it. But it's an 1857 novel about a boys' school in the 1830s. So um, that's really exciting. Stuff. Well, we figured that it wasn't that, you know, because of all the irony. Um, although, <laughs> from all I know, it might have irony in there. So Spider-Man decides to swing around the city, hoping to get rid of his cold, which, when I have a cold, I don't say, maybe if I go run around in the park, you know, my cold might go away. I think I better get to home and, like, get under the covers and have some orange juice. But that's why he's Peter Parker and I'm not. He sees a holdup happening on a rooftop and wonders how the crooks could be so stupid doing a holdup in, like, you know, a superhero area where superheroes will fly by and see it. So naturally, Spider-Man goes in fist a-blazing. We cut to the crowd and their reactions. And, well, we know how these crowds are, you know, in, in, in these books. The, you know, they're probably, you know, going to talk about how Spider-Man's a murderer and a thief. It's disgraceful, all those thugs ganging up on one lone man. If only the police will get here. Come on, get happy. <laughs> although, although, although we do have a back and forth. Don't worry about Spider-Man, lady. According to what I read in the Bugle, he's as bad as any of them. Still, he did tackle all those hoodlums, seemed in Hale and Lee to help us. How do we know he hasn't a more sinister reason? What was the so, more sinister reason being walked on the head? Yeah, <laughs> if this was Dicko though, like all of them would be saying, "Yeah, Spider-Man sucks." So at least we have two people on his side, right? Right. So I had to confess something here. Um, Spider-Man's talking funny through all this, like he has a cold in the nose for Christmas or something. Um, I had forgotten that he had the cold in the nose, and so it took me to like the bottom of this page to realize that it wasn't just scanning errors; that it was actually being misspelled in the in the copy. Um, yeah, so I fail. <laughs> Stan forgot too as of next issue because the cold as a plot line completely disappears as does the spider sense not working. Until the last page. Uh, okay, so would cure the cold, of course, because obviously Stanley would never let anything so logical no. go away. No, the last page, like, um, like he, he says that Aunt May thinks he has a cold because the fire made his temperature go up. Like Peter's oh. dialogue. Oh. So yeah, Stan Stanley forgot. <laughs> Yeah. Throughout the fight, Spider-Man gets the feeling that this was planned, that this is part of a bigger plot, and during the fight, Spider-Man clears a path to the elevator so that the hostages could get away, much to the disappointment of some kid, who I think this is the same kid from Amazing Fantasy 15 who was never allowed to see another horror movie again. You mean Carnage, right? I thought the same thing. Yes, it's Carnage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I forget when yeah. we when did we make that joke about that being Cletus Cassidy doing that <laughs> in a letters in like one of our letters uh, like things that we did like someone's like when did Carnage first appear and I'm like Amazing oh, yeah. Fantasy 15 it's that's it's right. the kid that's not allowed to see another horror movie so here he is now complaining about now do you think Stan is being tongue in cheek here about the complaints people make about cartoon violence no I think it's just. This is how he imagines a kid would be in this situation, and it's comic relief. Okay. Because the mothers are like, no, 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 it's too young. You're too young for such a... I think that was Were the Marvel cartoons out by this time? No, that was uh, in September this year. Is that, that's the only reason he, I think he would even care. Spider-Man realizes two things. One, that the gang doesn't at all seem phased about the hostages being gone, which is, you'd imagine that if you were holding them up, you'd want them there. Hmm. And two, he remembers Bromwell's and realizes that if he comes home with a big boo-boo, I might die. So he's like, oh yeah, I gotta be careful when I'm fighting. The gang takes this point to announce that it's time to unleash the gas. They fire it at him, and Goblin Exposition tells us what it does. Goblin Exposition provided by the Green Goblin flying above this building with his binoculars watching. And the gas he has just inhaled will weaken all his senses, including his most potent weapon, his spider sense. Then, with his spider sense not functioning, I'll be able to humble him at will. Stop, stop, stop. How does he know he has spider sense? I need this answered for me now. It's like it's about him saying, ah, you, everyone knows Spider-Man is a teenager. Like, How do these fools know that? Well, the chameleon and Doctor Doom both knew it. But how did they know that? Did they like, Skype each other and say, hey, did you know me as Spider Sense? They didn't have Skype back then. They used uh, they used AOL Messenger. But aren't oh, okay. aren't Norman Osborn and uh, Victor Von Doom like best friends? Isn't that what we learned from Dark Rain? Oh yeah, they're real buddies. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I mean, the thing, thing is, Spider Man's always been pretty careless about uh, uh, letting people know about his powers because uh, he's always yeah, and, and I you know don't know specifically about before this particular issue, but he's always talked about oh my spider sense you know caught you before you came up or don't you know not to sneak up on somebody who's spider sense, so he's uh, he's always kind of mouthed off about his uh, his uh, abilities. Uh, that is until J. Michael Straczynski was writing him, and then when Tony Stark made a reference to spider sense, then Spider Man goes all conspiratorial and oh I never told anybody but Aunt May and Mary Jane about my spider sense. Oh, anyway, but uh, now he's always kind of blabbed about having spider sense. So that's a good point. Right. He, the Goblin knows by reading the previous issues. Yes. That, that and anybody who's actually watched Spider-Man's fighting style uh, has, you know, can pretty well tell that he's kind of got a, a sixth sense about him. Well, the gang is surprised that the gas didn't finish them off, and they proclaim that the Green Goblin tricked them. They proclaim this two feet away from Spider-Man. As Spider-Man finishes them off and the cops arrive on the scene, Spidey swings off wondering who those guys were working for. <laughs> he wonders who they were working for. A few panels after they say the Green Goblin tricked us. They say go- yeah. Green Goblin specifically, uh, Green Goon. Well, the thug before that says, "Hey, the Goblin told us the gas would polish him <laughs> off," and then the other guy says that Green Goon tricked us. So, <laughs> so you know, kind of put it together. That kind of you know, yeah, it uh, it 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 wasn't uh, it wasn't Doc Ock, you know, so. And particularly since it's a green gas, you know, it's, uh, oh, well. (laughs) 
This is getting worse and worse for Peter. Come on. Now, here's another, here's another thing. I mean, it's like how many of these thugs are called Blackie? Uh, because, you know, obviously, in, <laughs> yeah. you know, on, on page well, number uh, 10, where, where they're talking about the gimmick, you know, somebody's going, cl- you know, clam up Blackie. I'll give him the gimmick. I mean, now, we had, obviously, this is, I mean, we had Blackie Gaxton, right? You know, who was a crony of Dr. Octopus's. So, you know, obviously, you know, most of the thugs in New York City are named Ga- or Blackie. And then Stan also hasn't quite figured out how the typical New York thug is supposed to talk. Because we've got uh, one of them, you know, one of them saying a few pages earlier, good woik boynod, you got him. Uh, and then... So, but I think he's the only one that talks like that. So, uh, Stan hasn't quite figured out how your typical New York goon talks yet. So, anyway, Blackie is actually a title. It's it's like a rank within the gang. I see. Lots of Blackies out there. Level Blackie. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> without, without, of course, nowadays that would be politically incorrect for you to say something like that. But uh, anyway. yeah, this is 1966. There's no such thing as There wasn't like a civil rights movement or anything at this time. Come on. It might or might not be worth noting that um, the gas that you mentioned that is green is actually white in uh, my copy. I don't know if uh, if that means anything. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the reprint, the dark during the dark rain or the reprint. So it could be they've recolored it for. Uh, oh, okay. Because this whole um, this whole thing here has been uh, it's been it was like the it's like a. Uh, a rebastered CD or DVD here. Um, they really uh, uh, almost recolored the thing for the. One Dark of those Rain computerized game. recolorings, like they did with the yeah. uh, Ant Man and the Wasp after Jan died. Yeah, so it's possible that maybe they'd recolor it green. So Peter changes, and as he's changing in an alley, he thinks, thanks to my spider sense, I don't have to worry about these quick change sessions. If anyone was watching me, I'd be aware of it. Okay, is, that, is that count six? I think we're at seven or eight now. 23. No one's apt to see me in here in the shadows of this old deserted building. <laughs> Wonder if I'd get kicked out of the superheroes union for not using a phone booth. I get it. This is Marvel, not DC. I get it. Now, I want to say this is the first time that Spidey has made reference to changing in a phone booth as a dig on Superman. Because it is kind of a recurring gag throughout his history that he, you know, references not changing in a phone booth. Although I've read every Superman story up through 1955, and I have yet to see Superman change in a phone booth, so I don't know where that comes from. Well, you wouldn't see him change in the phone booth. He he hides before he does it. You're not supposed to see Superman change in a phone booth. In the comics, they show you, freak show. (laughs) I don't know what kind of voyeurism comics you're reading. (laughs) Cherry Popper. No, in in the the Fleischer cartoons, doesn't he do that? Isn't that where it came from? He goes to the storage closet in the Flasher cartoons. Now, I, I, I possibly see at least one Flasher cartoon where he goes into a phone booth. Maybe he does. That, it's, I've only seen most of those once, and I'm going to rewatch them again for my Golden Age Superman podcast. Plug on goldenageSuperman.libsyn.com. Woohoo! Oh, yes. But as far as in the actual comics, the, the primary source material, um, at least what I think is primary, he doesn't change in the, com- in the phone booths. We're just baiting for an email, aren't we? <laughs> Well, Bailey says that he's pretty weak on some of those older stuff anyway. Yeah, he told me once that I have read more Superman than he has, which I thought was kind of insane. Thing I've never seen a sacrilege. I know, right? That would be like somebody knowing more like Spider-Man than JR. 
Uh, what I was just about to say, I have a, I've lost the last two out of three Spider-Man Jeopardies on the Spider-Man crawl space, <laughs> and I have a feeling Bertoni could beat me handily. So, uh, well, he writes the questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I write the questions. If I didn't beat you, I'd be a loser. <laughs> you know, this is kind of funny because uh, throughout here, when um, you know Peter is uh, walking around and he's thinking, boy, you know, I just feel something's around, but I know there can't be, or else my spider sense would be tingling. I mean, there's this there's this guy in a green and purple costume on a glider. Okay, now I, I it's been a long time since I've been to New York City, but from what I understand, New York City New York City is a pretty crowded place, and people are everywhere. People are walking everywhere, and even though Peter is not noticing this silly green and purple costume guy on a glider, you would think that somebody else in New York would be saying, "Hey, look, look up there! There's a goofball in a green and purple costume on a glider." Uh, but this is in every single panel. Norman's and, killing uh, them all. Like when, when they're pointing them, he's like zapping them. He's impaling them. Peter have you noticed that New York City is really, really empty when they want it to be? I mean, there yeah. is no alley in New York City that you can duck into and change clothes. It, there just isn't one. Like in the original version, this isn't the, this isn't at night, is it? It's still during the day, right? This is the end of business hours, I would guess, because. He doesn't go home before he gets captured, and then Aunt May's all worried about how late he is. But he does go by the bugle here in a couple of pages, and people are still there. So it's either at late business hours or after business hours, and Jonah's still working. And, and you got to wonder, uh, in, in the 1960s, were there any homeless people? Because you never see, I mean, you know, it's the 70s. I mean, he just he just willy nilly walks into any uh, Spiderman just walks into any alley and and doesn't expect it to get harassed or ask for money or you know change or anything of that nature. You know, he that just, of, um, I think it was Wolverine Spider Man that one shot where I think he changes in an alley and, and a homeless guy sees him and like he's just he he really can't be bothered. He like can't worry about it. So he's just like like oh don't tell anybody and just like ends up being late to to, to whatever was going on anyway because of that homeless guy. Well. That's actually a very big myth about New York. It, it's actually very underpopulated. They're, the population is like very small. There's very rarely any people in the streets. It's um, it, it's just one of those urban myths that have spun out of control. <laughs> and you were talking about the guy flying around behind him. What? It, it, it's a rocket propelled glider, right? No, for God's sake! <laughs> Wouldn't that thing make some noise? It's, it's like not, not only it's like I feel like my spider sense should be going off, but. I feel like my ears should be working, but apparently they're not. All behind you, you know. Look up, for crying out loud. I just like to imagine a montage of, like, Peter going down the street and, like, doing random things like going to the bank or getting the hot dog and, like, keep on turning around and, like, Norman, like, hides behind, like, different stuff the whole time. Or, like, you know, buildings fall, like, he barely misses them, but, you know, his spider sense isn't tingling, so he doesn't actually know they're happening. He doesn't dodge, he just happens to miss. Parker's day out. There you go. <laughs> There's a lost script for, this, for an old 60s cartoon. Well, Peeping Tom Green Goblin watches, ex- watches Peter change excitingly, as he'll be the first to discover Spider-Man's secret identity. Sorry, Goblin, there's at least two other people who have discovered it chronologically before you. And the Marvel No Prize goes out to anyone who can tell me who those two people are. I only know one of them. Thousand and... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, MJ Watson. Yeah, your No, no Prize is... King? Is that his name? Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. The Unseen Goblin is surprised to discover that Spider-Man is just a kid. <gasps> that's the line that's repeated in Spider-Man 2. 
he's just a kid. He can't be older than my son. And like in that in that uh, in that they say in this panel right around the time the the age of Peter in the movie is like around this time where he was only about nineteen or twenty. It's incredible. He's just a kid. Can't be more than nineteen or twenty. I never have guessed. As Peter thinks that he might should head home for Aunt May, huh, I could have sworn I heard a rustling above me, like some big bird flying by. That somehow sounds like a rocket. But I won't look up. Oh no. Why didn't my spider sense tingle? Because you just thought it was a bird? He's like, huh, I thought I heard a bird. Why didn't my spider sense tingle? Does your spider sense usually tingle for birds? Now, I thought about that when I read that. And I thought maybe in some cockamamie BS way, like his spider sense is an all-purpose radar for whatever goes on in his direction. Because, like, I I, I always fall back on that uh, 30th anniversary special where he explained to Mary Jane how his spider sense works. And basically... Anything that's directed towards him that could possibly perceive as a threat is it, it registers a tingle on the spider's sense. So I thought maybe that's what he meant, but hey, that's probably not what it meant. Unless the threat is your friend, as was explained in Amazing 148. But in Amazing 149, if someone's about to have sex with you, your spider sense also goes off. Well, that's pretty dangerous. Depends on who it is, though. Yeah, Mary Jane had some STDs then. STI is now the current correct term for that. <laughs> Come on, Parker, get a grip on yourself. You're so used to being in trouble. <laughs> then when you're not, you'll start imagining things. Next thing I'll know, I'll start seeing goofy costume supervillains who aren't there. Already oh. Come on, get happy. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, come on, get come on, get smart. Come on, man. Monster. <laughs> Peter flashbacks to the gunman incident of issue 37 where uh, he uh, where he saw a gun through a high window that was high for no reason about to shoot Professor Strom and but when he got to the window no one was there. He did shoot um, Professor Strom but he got a heart attack we talked about that. Yeah. It shot heart attack juice at him. So he worries about his spider sense and angst walks all the way to the Daily Bugle with the Green Goblin sneaking above him unseen to Peter and everyone else via glider. Where Peter runs into Ned Leeds, and, well, like before, we know it's on now, you know? I mean, last time these two spoke, they were yelling at each other, they were shoving, they were shouting. Hello there, Parker. I didn't know you were here. Nuts, and he wouldn't have known if I could help it. I was just trying to get some info on Betty's whereabouts, in, but no luck yet. I want to tell you something, fella. I'm sorry I snapped at you the other day. Irony, uh, oh, wait. what come on get happy it's just that i was upset about betty's disappearance bertoni footnote why (laughs) i had no call to fly off the handle at you first terry osborne and now him next jameson himself will probably blow me a kiss parker get in here i have something for you (laughs) no that didn't happen no. <laughs> Forget it. I guess the whole thing's just as much my fault as yours. I hope you do find her, Ned. And when you do, you don't have to worry about me. As of now, Peter Parker is out of the race. You're on your own. I'll never understand what came between you and Betty Brandt, Pete, but I appreciate you letting me know where you stand. Do y'all have, like, blush marks or something on Peter Parker's cheek in that first panel on the second row? No. First panel, second row. Is there wait, any like, I mean, little, wait, little marks on. on his cheek? Oh, yeah, kind of. I just wonder why he's blushing. But if they're not there in Donovan's, then probably is just a mark on the page that shouldn't be there. Never mind. Yeah, so everybody's happy, even Ned Leeds. Parker, is that you? I want to see you. 
uh-oh, it's Laughing Boy Jameson, the little Mary Shunshine of the publishing world. All right, now, I'm wise to Stan's game now. Gwen was nice. Unnamed ESU boy was nice. Harry was nice. Ned Leeds is nice. So Jameson, let's see what he has to say. How many times do I have to tell you this is a newspaper office, not a campus hangout? If you haven't any photos for me, get lost. Let's go. He's nice. Okay. We have some consistency. <laughs> and then they play Let's Catch Up the New Readers and how this whole thing works. Yeah. So Jonah didn't get the come on, get happy notice. Peter and Jonah have a back and forth regarding money in the pictures. Peter even threatens to take them to Daily Globe. But eventually Peter gives Jonah the pictures and Jonah gives Peter a check for half their work. The goblin, thanks to a shotgun mic, now knows Peter's name. He follows him home and then reveals himself once Peter arrives at the Parker house. And uh, – no. Okay, now I got to step back here a little bit before. I remember when I was talking about his, his puny, his little purple purse, and how he had these huge, two huge pumpkin bombs, and how in the world was he going to fit those in his little purple purse? Now he's pulling out what looks like almost like a mini, like he's almost ready for a jousting tournament. You know, he's got this <laughs> shot, he's got this shotgun bike, and it's like, okay, now where did that come from? Look at you this. Know, <laughs> Where, where is he hiding all of this stuff? You know, so particularly this is something that was like really sharp. I mean, I, so he couldn't have had it crammed down his pants or anything. And uh, I just don't know. Why I mean, do you think he's so unpleasant? One word, pearls. Now we return you back to Bertoni's regular narration. So, Well, actually, um, yes, I was going to read the dialogue for Osborne revealing himself to Peter right in front of the house. But if, if I can have uh, the goblin uh, performer himself uh, do it, I, I would be so over, ever so honored. The green goblin, oh, you, you found oh, me. Man. I was about to say, I won't, I won't do the, the goblin revealing himself because I'd get arrested. But uh, I can't have him, uh, you know, showing himself. Uh, well, I there's no way I can make that sound good, is there? Oh, hey, we're <laughs> here. All right. Let's see here. Ah, uh, see. No need to go inside, Parker. I'll just have to go after you and drag you out again. That voice, then. There was someone. I'd recognize it anywhere. The Green Goblin. You, you found me. Correct, Parker. Your web-slinging masquerade is finally finished. And so are you, Spider-Man. Peter tries to strike, but realizes that he has none of his equipment on. So the goblin quickly overwhelms him with gas from the glider. To I really like up. the panel where he's doing the uh, the web shooting without the web shooters there. It's just it's a Spider-Man pose, but it's Peter Parker, and you get a facial expression which you never get because of the Spider-Man mask. It's just a cool little yeah. piece of art there. I, I'll go into it later, but I love this fight sequence. And actually, another note: I, I can literally hear Christopher Daniel Barnes saying, "I don't have my web shooters." Yeah, because they did that in the '90s show. That like uh, they almost adapted this fight, like shot for shot, complete with the "I don't have my web shooters on." Oh yes. So inside the window, Aunt May thinks, "Is it merely my imagination, or do I keep hearing the strangest sounds out there? I'd better have a look through the window." Oh dear, I can't see a thing. There's some sort of dense fog outside. That what kind of fog does New York usually get? Because that's not that. Like I would think that the Watson or the Abbott house was on fire if I saw that. Yeah, that's not fog, dear. That's smoke. Have you noticed how young Aunt May has gotten? <laughs> well, you know, while she was getting that last operation done, they did a little nip-tuck. They're going to get letters about this. Rita's going to have to age her back up again. 
But that's most peculiar. It was a clear spring night just a few minutes ago. Where on earth could this fog have come from? Poor Peter, out there alone, on such a dark fog-shrouded evening. I do wish he were home. He's a frail young man. Irony counts. <laughs> yeah, but if it's Aunt May, then it's already, you know, I mean, anything yeah. she say is going to be full of irony. <laughs> but at that very second, May Parker's frail young man prepares to give a good account of himself against the deadly Green Goblin. Peter does his best to dodge the Green Goblin's attacks, but he slowly gets worn down as the Goblin finishes Peter off with one of his ghost bombs. Those little things that he threw at the Human Torch in issue 17 that uses like, oh. Try to catch it if you can! <laughs> oh my god. What's that? <laughs> Peter is unconscious and gets tied up with a steel cable and flown, as famously depicted on the cover, to the Green Goblin's waterfront hideouts. Peter's you are probably wondering what fate I have in store for you. Well, rest assured, it will be one you deserve. I've got to stall for time somehow. <laughs> you might as well finish me off right now, because if you delay, I'll end up beating you, as I did in the past. You never beat me! Those were just accidents! Do you hear? Accidents! Yeah, kind of like when the dog crapped on the carpet and things like that. That kind of accident. You can't rush me now! You'll never escape! It's working. His insane pride won't let him do what I suggested. And now, before you meet your end, I've one final surprise in store for you. Oh, God. That's it. Keep talking. Bragging. Ranting. Anything. Just as long as I have a little while to strain against these coils. Since you'll never live to betray me to another soul, it's only fitting that you learn the identity of the one who has beaten you. It almost sounds like Ricardo Montalban later in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, but first I wanted you to know who it was who had beaten you. <laughs> anyway, and so, at long last, the Green Goblin will introduce himself. Take a look, Parker. A good, long look. It's the last face Spider-Man will ever see. It's the real face of the Green Goblin. The face of Norman Osborn. Those features. That name. Of course. Even though you were just introduced two issues ago, you're related to my own classmate. You're Harry Osborn's father. <laughs> Well, well, of course he has to be with that tacky haircut. I mean, the Osborne hair is is rather unique. Nobody else besides an Osborne hair. Well, no, wait a minute. The Sandman does. The Sandman does have Osborne hair. I well, nobody Sandman. else is born with Tootsie Rolls on their head. Sandman, I should have known. You know, it's kind of funny the um, because we were ta- going back to the Ned Leeds part, uh, and I missed. I miss, I know that you guys, um, your last podcast, you did uh, a guy named Joe. I think that was was that issue number thirty eight, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Amazing, and we're um, Spider Man, and then Spider Man sees this stupid mannequin where it says reminds him of Ned Leeds. When I was going through these old issues, I was uh, I had thought that. This was part of my speculation that Ditko had originally intended Ned Leeds to be the Green Goblin because there was, I mean, there is, there was an, an essay I had read years ago that speculated that. But when, as I was reading this, it just seemed like something was really, really building between Ned and, and Peter, you know, because Peter was just getting angry and angrier all the time to now where he's thinking that stupid wax dummies look like Ned Leeds and he starts punching them out. And uh, I thought that this was going to be some big reveal that Ditko originally had planned Ned Leeds to be the Green Goblin. But uh, I guess as um, Ditko has later claimed, it was always intended to be 
Osborne. So, oh well, another brilliant theory bites the dust. That was the thing, though. But do you think that Stanley ever? Because there's that rumor. Was there? Was there any like clues that were people saw that said, "Oh, well, this means that it's it's the the Goblin's dead leads," or was just like a guess that it'll turn out to be him? Were there anything that like any evidence to back up people's ideas that could be dead? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I don't think so. It was This was something I, re- I read in a, there was a, apparently there was a comic book store, of, a large comic book store in New York called, um, it wasn't Fantagraphics, because that's, uh, that's something else, but they published like, um, well, it's called Fanta Chronicles, and they published like a, a magazine about a superhero every month, and one month was Spider-Man, and it was almost like the precursor of Spidey Kicks, but it was these different people writing uh uh, essays on Spider-Man, and someone was speculating that it, it had to be uh, it had to be Leeds that was the Green Goblin. So you know, as I read through all these issues, just because the way Ned kept popping up, you know, and he was obviously a romantic rival uh, for Betty's affections, and uh, but I, I don't think there ever was any real. When you when you go back and look at the, uh, in fact, there really weren't any clues at all of who the green goblin was there was there was never any real as far as i remember there was never any real kind of foreshadowing over who it had to be uh, particularly since norman had been only you know as by name had only been introduced a couple issues before and then he appeared in a couple of of panels but no i i don't think there was any it just was nice speculation it also probably was partially fed by the myth that uh, stan and steve had this argument about the goblin's identity so well, look, looking back on these issues and just, you know, the way we've approached them with the unnamed Norman Osborn appearances and watching how the story flowed, it seems to me organic enough that I'm kind of surprised all the controversy has arisen around it over the decades. That I would think that once Norman Osborn was revealed as the Green Goblin, people would go back and check their last, you know, two years of back issues and like, oh, wow. Look at all the things he's done over the, you know, putting him in the scenes and everything. That's really, really cool. Instead of, huh, that couldn't possibly be the way it was originally planned. Yeah, I'm, and that makes me think of, like, people, like, get to the last page and, like, wait, what? And they just, like, throw the comic across the room. <laughs> the new character that was reduced, like, like mere months ago? Forget that. Th- that would have surprised me. I mean, uh, because really, other than when he appeared in 37... He had a, a person that looked like him had appeared in like what what two panels, way back in what issue number twenty two or twenty three, and then there was something more recent where he was he was putting an ad in the bugle, and and that was it really. I mean, it wasn't like there was any build up to. Uh, I mean, it wasn't really like the character of Norman Osborn had actually been identified for the last couple of years. In fact, Harry him Harry himself had only been around since issue thirty one. So, but but Ditko but Ditko claimed in in a right and uh, you know uh, in a, in an interview that uh, he had introduced the Goblin earlier and then he in, later introduced his son. So, I mean that can only be one person that he had in mind. So, right. I wonder if people looked at those country club scenes and like thought that the Sandman was like disguising himself. <laughs> well, it doesn't have the same like like a flat top rockhead that. Osborne's head is shaped differently than Sandman, but they had like this. But as we all know, they're cousins. Isn't that right, John Byrne? Wink. <laughs> well, this was an amazing issue. And thank you, uh, Josh, for bringing the recap on it. Yay. I would say, what do we think about it? But that's kind of redundant because we've been, we've been praising it and lauding it this entire time. The best issue since 33, in my opinion. I'll buy I, that. 
I, I think we praise it because of one of his, its historical significance, more so than the real quality. Because when you think about it, I mean, these two issues, particularly number 40, more so than number 39, I mean, Stan's dialogue is just really lame. I mean, it's very lame, it's very cliched. The uh, all the supervillain monologuing, and Peter's just relentless angst over you know, you know what if Aunt May sees? What if Aunt May finds out? Oh, I can't give Aunt May any shocks. And then Aunt May's old bitty, you know, her own bitty frantic and uh, worrying and and stuff. I mean, real people don't talk like this. They don't think like this. They don't act like this. Um, you know, so I, I it's it's looking back on it, it's 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 um, we look at this issue fondly because of its historical significance with the goblin, the revelation of the goblin's identity, and and also being the first uh, issue drawn by John Romita Jr. I think that kind of we look at that and we kind of forget the uh, the actual uh, somewhat mediocrity. I would I would I would I would actually disagree because. It- Hey, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this not the first time in comics history that a supervillain has found out the hero's secret identity and attacked him in his home? Because I think that is like really, really, really cool. Even like today, like the idea that they're fighting in front of his front lawn and Peter has literally—he doesn't have his equipment. He doesn't—he doesn't have his costume fully on, and he's completely unaware and taken off guard and loses the fight immediately because of it. I honestly think that's 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 like genuinely quality stuff. I have to wonder if. Stan Lee was so, what's the word, verbose. There's another word I learned recently for verbose, but um, I don't know what it is anymore. Um, I wonder if Stan Lee is so verbose in this just because he's so excited from getting the pages from John Romita. Like it's, you know, come on, get happy was also in Stan Lee's head. You know, it's just like, oh, wow, I took a chance on changing my Spider-Man artist and I'm getting these pages in and they're beautiful and everybody has to say something in every single panel now. No, that was just Stan being Stan. Yeah, but he has not been that much of a wordy writer in the last few issues, I don't think. Okay. But maybe I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong at least once before in here. I think Stan was always kind of a verbose writer. But then again, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm making the mistake now. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being somewhat smug and arrogant as I'm, I'm judging a, a mid to late 1960s comic by 21st century standards. So, you know, probably I need to take, take a deep breath and, and uh, rethink what I just said about, you know, mediocrity and silliness because, I mean, you know, you can't take the story out of the era in which it was written. Right. And, and as Don, you know, as, as Don brings up, you know, whether or not this was the first time this hap- this type of thing happened. It really probably was pretty damned exciting. Uh, one of Spider-Man's villains basically shows up at his house. I mean, now it's old hat, but back then it probably was something very unique and uh, very startling and uh, you know quite cool. So yeah, I, I just really love the way it's done. And before I like just stop the the podcast dead with going on about the art, I just love like certain stuff. Like Peter, he puts up a fight. It's not like he's like. Like like John said earlier, the cold kind of goes away. It's not like he's like, oh, I can't fight him because I have the cold. He tries to fight him. Like there's that one part where, at the last panel, page seventeen, Ramita draws him acrobatically dodging the Bobless blast, and he manages to like smack away the the batarang at the last second, and makes one final leap towards the goblin. And he just like he makes one final leap towards the goblin and is caught off guard by like, all the goblin's techniques and abilities. I think that's. It's a very reasonable fight. Like Peter, I mean, he's still Spider-Man. He still has all of his strength, so he he's not totally outmatched. He's just completely taken aback and caught off guard, and that's what really loses the fight. 
because of, this is the most dangerous, shocking thing that's ever happened to him in his, in his life. And I, I think that's, it was really well written. <laughs> irony, or, irony or no. <laughs> we, we do realize just how much Peter depends upon his web shooters. I think uh, if Mr. Miyagi were to come along right now, he would give Peter some hard lessons and not, you know, leaning on those things so much and getting more skilled in his other abilities. But once you take away his web shooters, all of his long distance stuff goes away. He has to get close quarters to be any good. And he can't do that with the Green Goblin. I've always wanted to see Spider-Man kind of like when he's without his web shooters or out of webbing, just to run up to a guy because he's faster than, he's like 15 times faster than a normal person. He can just like run up and like, not super speed, but just kind of like blitz him and just knock him out before the guy has time to react. Right. He doesn't have his spider sense, and I think that he relies a lot on that too, like when the dodge punches and when the make side of movement. So I think that that was also crippling him during the fight. Yeah, and he's not entirely focused on the fight either. He's he's, you know, in the back of his mind, he's always worrying about it. What happens if Aunt May looks out the window and sees this fight going on? So he's not entirely focused on bringing Norman down as much as he is trying to, you know, how do I beat him? But also, how do I hide hide what the heck I'm doing? So his his focus is kind of split as well. So. So, yeah, there's a lot of things. And, and, and again, as you mentioned, too, just the sheer surprise. I mean, <laughs> this lunatic shows up on his front yard. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that uh, that's probably quite a shock, you know. And, and, and he, it takes him some time. I mean, in all the months or years or however long continuity this has been, no one has ever done this to him. So uh, it's got to be quite a And, you know, and then he's wondering. He's also probably wondering in the back of his mind, how did he find out? How did he find out? How did he find out? And so exactly. probably he's going through mentally, you know. So he's got a whole bunch of different things going on uh, rather than, you know, just focusing on, on fighting. Whereas Norman's obviously got, you know, Norman doesn't give a rat's ass what's going on around him. You know, he's, you know, he's got him exactly where he wants him and, uh, and can bring everything to bear against, uh, against, although he does pull another one. He pulls this flying bat, you know, it's like, oh boy, here's another thing that he pulls out of his purple purse. Uh, <laughs> extra small purple purse. Yeah. So... It's definitely not a purple plastic purse because it can't expand. But I'm pretty yep. sure that he has some Mary Poppins powers going on there, like Josh said earlier. What a spoonful <laughs> of sugar. Flash Thompson's wearing black. Ooh, foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> because, spoiler, guess who's the new Venom, guys and gals? And we have on the Spider-Man Crawl Space episode, me asking Dan Slott, is Flash Thompson the new Venom and Dan Slott changing the subject? <laughs> so Venom is nice to Spider-Man in this story. Yeah, because Gwen told him to be. Gwen said oh, Venom yeah. be nice to Spider-Man. Venom, we decided we were going to be nice to Spider-Man this time. Oh, everybody's man. nice, except for John. I we were playing music the entire time. <laughs> yeah, they all got the ma- just like everyone's a little bulkier and less angsty. Even on yeah, they got younger. We're onto the art now. Everybody, everybody's kind of more filled out. I mean, Peter. Well, there were times where Ditko did draw Peter very athletically, and uh, you saw some thick muscle on him. But right here, like his face is a lot fuller, without looking overweight or anything. And um, his hair seems a little shorter just just by the shape of his head. And he's, it, it, the art is a lot. It, the way Ramita is, his art is always like crystal clear, so you can kind of see more def, more more rend- better rendering on people like Ned Leeds and Ame. You kind of recognize, or maybe that's just because like the panels are bigger. Like he, he doesn't do the nine-panel grids that Dicka would, would routinely do. Right. Ramita kind of, Ramita's a lot more of a, uh, 
just by the nature of his past career, he's a lot more of a um, cinematic storyteller in terms of like kind of garnering emotion. Where Ditko was very clinical and did a lot of like very, he wouldn't really care about too much about the art. Um, well, I don't, I, and that by that I mean he wouldn't really gleam, gleam upon more than was absolutely necessary. I don't think. Where a lot of times you kind of have zoom ups on Peter, people's faces, really, and Ditko did do that, but here there was dialogue. There's less dialogue with Ramita than I think there was with Ditko. Generally. And it's going to get less as we go on. Ramita's going to get to where he puts four panels on most pages. And yeah. reading a Spider-Man comic is going to become a five-minute job, even in 1967, 68, you know, a lot like it is now, just because there's so few panels on the page. If you compare this Spider-Man to the one that was in Daredevil when Ramita drew him there, um, I think he's a lot better. What do you guys think? Because I think John had, was, had some complaints back then. I think he improved over the course of those two issues. He was kind of rough in some of the opening action. Like, there was a TV news report about Spider-Man taking out the Master Planners gang. No, the Mass Marauders gang. <laughs> and that wasn't very smooth. But I think that over the course of those two issues, he improved enough that his covers look really good. Yeah, yeah. I think that the web pattern is a lot wider and less. Uh, there's less webs on it. There's one shot in the Rhino issue where, like, he has a ton of webs on it, but that's only, like, one. Right now, you can sort of tell with Spider-Man and Peter, he's trying to eat Ditko because he has said as much. But uh, I think in about three or four issues, he really does get into his own Ramita-esque groove that we all love. And even here, especially in the next issue, it seems it looks a little different. Right. There's another instance where the villain kind of bigs up Spider-Man. Because when Peter is, like, like temporarily knocked out by a... Goblin's goblin gas, made of goblin gas. Um, <laughs> he says, goblins. most people would be completely unconscious, perhaps even near death. But Paco is merely stunned. His spider strength is everything they say it is. So, like, I just love when, because that's done for exposition state, exposition's sake, and not really for a villain's observation. And he would probably be like, Drat, he's only stunned. But he says, wow, isn't he awesome? I, I just found that funny. And, uh, my last thing before I, I shut up because I've been talking way too much. No, it's fine. Um, You're fine. He doesn't have his web shooters here. Doesn't he, doesn't he web away in the, at the end of the next issue? Maybe they're like under his costume somewhere. Like he's not wearing them, but like he they're in like a belt compartment that he could put on. I got the impression that they were just wherever they go when he's not being Spidey. In Negative his pocket, space. in his pocket or whatever it is, he just doesn't have them on his wrists. But whenever he whenever he soups up later. He can pull them out of whatever that place is, like the pocket in his cape, maybe, and um, and put them on. I think I think in the '90s show when they did this, and uh, he was being dragged away by the Green Goblin, he actually he literally takes his web shooter out of his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of cool, but yeah, if you had him on like during the day, you would see like the trigger on his palm, so that wouldn't work. Right. Well, they did that in um, at the end of One More Day when like everyone's raising their glasses, like you can see a Peter sleeve that he's wearing his web shooters. Oh, really? Is- that's kind of nice, actually. I, kind of like I think I like that. That was how fans realized that the web shooters were back and that the organic webbing was gone. Cool. Literal. Yes, that, that that is just what people thought at the end of One More Day when they closed that last page. Cool! <laughs> well, yeah, but I like the web shooters, but maybe that is just my opinion. On page six, Gwen is all inner monologuing about Peter's awesomeness. And I think she's been daydreaming about this boy just a little bit too much. I know that guys are sometimes like that if, if the hot chick would just come and be part of my crowd, that would be so awesome. But here, she's doing the same thing. 
Wynn is wondering if the hot chick will come over to our crowd. Or we just well, you know, swap the genders out. Although, you know, maybe she likes that. Um, well, according to fanfic. Uh, never mind. No. <laughs> Josh has vetoed the fanfic. The middle panel of page six gets the prize for cutest panel ever. It's this little itty bitty teeny tiny panel right in the middle of the page. It's very cute. Also, you think that we talked about how this is sort of like a, a quasi, not reboot, but sort of like volume two of Amazing Spider-Man. This is kind of like an introductory because you're introduced to all the supporting characters, Aunt May, Daily Bugle, his love life, his uh, classmates, the way he takes out bad guys, his abilities, his spider sense, his web slinging. It is kind of like a, if you've not seen Spider-Man before, well, bucko, you're in for it now kind of thing. I get the feeling that Stan was expecting a big following of Romita to come over to the book, maybe from Daredevil or maybe from his romance stuff or or maybe just now that Steve Ditko is leaving, people were going to try it out. He had made lots of announcements in the uh, bullpen bulletins and stuff. So if you were reading other Marvel comics and there was a change in the order, then you might want to come check it out. So he does do a lot to reacquaint readers and bring new readers up to speed with how the Spidey Marvel Universe works. It's, it's funny because I remember in that, document, that Ditko documentary, both Romita says that both he and Stan really thought the book was going to die the second Ditko left. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That there was a lot of people that thought that without Dicko, this book was uh, going to go to the pooper. And maybe that was even more reason why he was trying to, you know, if you did come and check it right. out, bring it up. Yeah, exactly. I'll be curious to see what the letters are like in an episode or two whenever these issues hit the stands and let people are writing in about their opinions on them. Because um, I really don't remember. I, I do read most letters columns whenever I read a comic book, but I don't remember what these are as we go through them. So... It'll be interesting to see. So this was definitely um, one of our favorite issues so far, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask JR, how would you rank this among um, your uh, uh, collection of Goblin stories? Like, do you look back at this, or is it just like this kind of one where you just look at it for the history? Well, um, I know I remember when I was um, came up with something called like the Essential Spider-Man, or the, no, the Indispensable Spider-Man. This, this two-part tale was definitely on it. I mean, it, it's clearly one of the most important goblin stories uh you probably have to put but is it one of the best i don't know i mean i'm 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 trying to think of the ones i'm partial to uh peter parker 75 uh citizen osborne uh death in the family i'm not sure it would be in the top i'm not sure this would be in the top five goblin stories i actually uh the spectacular uh number two slash uh annual number nine actually i like that story better than this one it's obviously one of the most significant and one of the most important. I don't know that I would call it one of the best Goblin stories. Probably, I probably wouldn't put it in my top five. Yeah, that's that's, that's true. There there are much better ones that just play off of Peter's fear that oh, oh crap that, that guy's back again. He's going to tell everybody I'm Spider Man. So that did lay well, groundwork for some even better stories. I will admit that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and two Norman had, wasn't really developed as a character at this time either. So, you know, in the later stories where he's been more developed as a character, and you kind of, and and he's he's you know he's not just this. Uh, uh, he's kind of a black and white bad guy here in Stan's renderings. You know, he doesn't have a whole lot of depth quite yet. So he's still somewhat of a simplistic character. But I mean, again, you know, it's it's what 1966, 1967 when this was written. So it was it was it was pretty good for the time. So looking at some of the things that happened in this book, aside from the story, we had our house ad for the issue, which featured three more Marvel masterpieces. Those were Fantastic Four number 53, 
where we get some background on the Black Panther and the man who would become Claw, who is much more sinister in this story than he is in Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars, where I found him very laughable. There's also Thor 130, which I honestly haven't read, but it involves Hercules and Pluto, so I'm wondering if this is when Hercules makes the deal with Pluto to stay in his place in the underworld. I what, did have, Mickey, what did Mickey have to say about that, though? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that Minnie was pretty attached to that dog, so um, I could go somewhere with that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> in fact, I was recently reading – there's a blog that uh, I have mentioned on our Facebook page, but if you don't follow that – over at MarvelGenesis.com, Don Alsafi has been going through every Marvel superhero book from Fantastic Four number one moving forward and just making short blog posts about them. It's not a recap and commentary thing, but just, you know, half a dozen or fewer points about the book that he thought were interesting, and there are panel scans and such things. So those are definitely worth checking out if you have time to go over to MarvelGenesis.com. And he has recently gotten to the beginning of the Lee and Kirby run on Thor. And everyone's bragging about the awesomeness that I think I'm just going to have to go and pull some Thor out, even though I've never really read it regularly. Um, and finally, we have Marvel Collector's Item Classics 4, which had reprints from the Fantastic Four, Iron Man from Tales of Suspense, Doctor Strange from Strange Tales, and the original run of The Incredible Hulk. So those were our ads for this month. The Marvel Bullpen Bulletins page brings us items of lasting insignificance from the four quarters of Marveldom. There is a bulletin celebrating Ramita's new role on Spider-Man. But bigger than that is the item right below it. Here it is. What you've been waiting for. Our first advance info on the great king-size annuals we'll be publishing this summer. Although our plans are still subject to change, it looks as though we'll be featuring six Tariff titles for you, with two going on sale in June, two in July, and the final two in August. These six mags are Millie the Model Annual. We know that's going to break all you superhero fans up. And Sergeant Fury, both on sale in June. Then the Mighty Thor and Marvel Superheroes on sale in July, followed by the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man on sale in August. We can hear you muttering now, Marvel Superheroes? What in the name of Aunt Petunia is that? Well, you know how we love surprises, so just consider it our big surprise for 66, and we'll tell you more about it next ish, okay? We will be talking about the third Amazing Spider-Man annual in our next episode, so be looking forward to that. Hope you're an Avengers fan. If you're not, <laughs> skip the episode. But it is a much better Spidey Avengers story than his guest spot in the Avengers number 11. He's not a robot this time. He's not a robot this time. And he doesn't make giant web wings with which he soars across the Mexican plains. Uh. (laughs) (sighs) Too bad. Too bad. He really should have done so. (laughs) And in the ongoing saga of Marvel vs. Brand Eck, we have Bulletin. Remember last-ish when we asked you if you wanted us to continue wrapping Brand Eck on the knuckles for swiping everything in our mags except the copyright? Well, all the mail isn't in yet. But while we're waiting for your verdict, we thought we'd quote this little verse which rascally Roy Thomas brought to our attention. It's by William Butler Yeats, and was written half a century ago, although it might have been written today. Here it is. To a poet who would have me praise certain bad poets, imitators of his and mine. You say, as I have often given tongue, in praise of what another's said or sung, twere politic to do the like by these, but was there ever a dog that praised his fleas? We somehow feel that Willie Yates said it a lot better than we could have. So to me, that's just mean, but that's okay. We do have the usual page advertising Marvel clothing and paraphernalia, including a brand spanking new sweatshirt featuring the ever-loving blue-eyed Benjamin J. Grimm in all his natural beauty. 
And in the spider's web, response to the molten man regrets in issue 35 was pretty much positive. Which doesn't really agree with us at all, as Donovan's little squeal just showed. I guess they're allowed to be wrong, since they you know, were in the 60s and didn't know any better. We did have Mrs. Melanie Skinner, who happened across an issue of Spider-Man while cleaning up around the neighborhood, and she took an instant liking. She's on base in Alaska and sent money for a subscription, and they sent her the latest issue to tie her over until the subscription could get processed. So pretty cool with, you know, moms reading comics. John Cahill, or Kale, or something, of Pembroke, Massachusetts, asks people to stop sending death wishes on kind, loving, sacrificing Aunt May. No. And Ann Kong is a student in Trinidad in the West Indies, and she complains that she'll take her comics to school to read between classes, but then her English teacher will see them, confiscate them, read them, and pass them around the faculty for them to read before returning them to her. Stan wrote that. (laughs) She also wants to be an artist and laments that so many girls in comics are, as she says, downright homely. To which Stan replies that Ring-A-Ding Ramita is in the process of changing that, beginning with this very issue. And on that note, we are going to take a little break and come back with issue number 40. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed. And to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies. And what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spin of Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time. So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Next up, we have Amazing Spider-Man 40, cover dated September 1966, but released on June 9th. The cover was drawn by John Romita and inked by Mike Esposito. The image is Spider-Man standing fierce and triumphant over a prostrate green goblin while flames blaze in the background and his glider lies wrecked on the floor. Oh, sorry, his broomstick lies wrecked on the floor. Oh, of course. The captions read... How will he clean his house now? (laughs) The captions read, Spidey saves the day and the end of the green goblin. He doesn't save the day. He saves his own ass. 
Which is yes. today, as we all know. <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around him, just the just the book. Am I alone? I kind of wished they hadn't telegraphed on the cover how this was going to go. I wouldn't mind retaining the illusion just a little bit longer that Spider-Man's actually in real jeopardy here. Having Spider-Man Saves the Day, we already knew that was the title from the last issue's next issue box. But the end of the Green Goblin and him prostrate on the floor, I felt like kind of like the second part of the Master Planner story where it was immediately revealed that it was the Doctor Octopus. It was kind of like a little bit of letting the cat out of the bag a little bit too quickly. Yeah, it looks like Spider-Man did like curb stomp him, so I guess we want to know. In what manner does Spider-Man murder the Green Goblin? Find out, true believers. <laughs> well, you know, actually, if you, uh, I was just looking through this uh, Dark Rain reprint uh, where it actually has the uh, the covers of the two issues, 39 and 40, on opposite pages. You know, it actually kind of makes a nice bookend. Uh, whether this was intended or not, probably not. But in issue number 39, the, the Green Goblin, it clearly appears to be triumphant because he's got, uh, you know, an unmasked Spider-Man helpless and, and tied up before him. And then issue number 40, the, the roles are reversed where Spider-Man is, you know, standing triumphant and the Goblin's, you know, you know, is is hugging the pavement, so it actually kind of you know put together. It actually kind of makes a nice bookend. But uh, but I yeah I see your point where it's like yeah you know. But then again, don't you always know the hero is going to kind of win? You know, at least in the, yeah, the 1960s, the hero. I'm right. surprised every single time. <laughs> well, like I said, it's kind of like maintaining the illusion. You know, we know he's going to win. We know it's all going to come out okay in the end. We don't know that it's going to come out okay in the end of this issue. Right, but there's still the question of, like, after he's defeated, how is he going to convince Norman not to uh, blow his secret to the whole wide world? Because there's no psychic mind block as of now. Right, right. And um, there <laughs> are. The- about that for several, several decades. Right. He goes to Doctor Strange and Iron Man and Reed Richards and says, Pretty please. And I didn't understand early on in the post One More Day world that the psychic mind block wasn't retroactive. So I thought they were overwriting this story, but that's not true. The story really did happen in all of its, you know, fictitious merit. They don't explain that in the comics. Like you have to, you have to Joe Casada had to like come out and say that outside of the comic. Right. They, Norman remembers going to Peter Parker's house. He just doesn't quite remember what numbers were on the door. We didn't actually go to the house. They were just, they were on the street. Right. He does. He just doesn't remember what street sign it was. He remembers hearing his name from the shotgun mic, but he just. Can't remember the exact pronunciation. He's, he's like, woo, 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 woo. Ah. <laughs> that guy's expensive. There's something about Peter Parker that strikes a chord in my brain. If only I could remember what it was. God. It's the best writing ever. So we opened up to an ad for U.S. government surplus parachutes, boats, jackets, and other random crap. But what we really care about is a splash page. Peter Parker is in his Spider Man costume, though without his mask. But over that are tatters of his clothing that he wore that day, and it actually kind of looks like he might have hulked out recently. But the title is again emblazoned across the page, Spidey Saves the Day, featuring The End of the Green Goblin, which is in much bigger letters than the actual title. There's a recap box for all those who missed the last dish because they were orbiting Earth on a spaceship, and our credits read, Conceived in fantasy, and dedicated to the proposition that all Marvelites are entitled to life, Liberty and the pursuit of comic book quality. So say we all. Stan Lee Ryder, John Romita Penciler, Mickey DeMeo Inker, unless you pronounce it Mike Esposito, and Sam Rosen Letterer. What, what happened to Artie Smack? Did he get fired for this? 
I think Artie Simic and Sam Rosen trade out a lot of issues. I don't think that either one has been very steady on this book. I guess we have more, had more Artie Simic, though, because I always wonder how I'm going to pronounce his name when I say it. In the opening dialogue, Peter mentions Harry, and that gives Norman pause for a moment. And while he mutters, we learn that Harry has no idea his father is a costume supervillain. Peter continues to goad Norman with mentions of Harry, and Norman decides that an origin story is in order, which makes Peter happy because he can spend the time working at the cables binding him. The steel cables that he's going to somehow bend his way out of. This is something I always found interesting was uh, as kind of on, on page two as you're as you're reading here and Norman is starting to uh, he's kind of starting to lose it. He's starting to break down and yeah. and uh, kind of I guess apparently even starting to have some regrets. And Peter's thinking he's a real mental case. My only chance is to keep taunting him. But I've got to be careful. One wrong word could make him violent and then bye bye Spidey. So. What does Peter do when he senses that Norman's starting to become vulnerable? Uh, he sa- And then he says, Who, I've got to be careful because I, c- I don't want to make him violent. What's the very next words right out of Peter's mouth? Big deal. Who cares why you became the Green Goblin? You probably lost an election bet or something. What does it matter? You know, so, <laughs> yeah, that that's real subtle, Pete. There we go. That That's really taking advantage of the situation uh, and, and exploiting the guy's vulnerability and also worrying about saying something that'll make him violent. So, you know, once again, uh, Peter shows how sometimes he's just not very smart right. uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, dealing with supervillains. So. Well, I, like, I like Osborne because he was like, big deal. What does it matter? You fool. I'll show you what it matters. I'll make you listen, then you'll understand. And then it's like you might as well, you know, cue the monologuing, and then here we go. Right, do the little time travel music. You got me monologuing. (laughs) But the way that they tell the origin story here is kind of interesting. Um, The captions give us Norman's words describing how he views the past through his, you know, I would say rose-colored glasses, but they're probably green. No, through his flat. Oh, wait, never mind. That's later on. But the dialogue in the scenes show us what really happened. And how Norm isn't half the father he thinks he was. Uh, we find out that Harry's mom had died when Harry was a baby, which I think is conflicted in later stories. Is that right, Josh? Uh, the When she dies is conflicted various times. In the Child Within story, you see uh, Harry looking through a photo album, and his mother is alive, like almost to his toddler or kindergarten years. But in the okay. Goblin, she died in childbirth. Yeah. In childbirth? Like, like, like she gives birth to Harry and dies. Uh, oh, wow. She, she yeah, gave birth then, to Harry. Harry aged a few years, and then she died. And uh, J.M. Dematthias's um, or Demathis's um, take on the story, I think, in uh, Spectacular Annual number fourteen, I think, implies that Harry's actually, you know, around six to eight years old when when she dies. Um, but it's you can kind you can kind of stitch it to you know to mean just about anything you want to mean i mean it you know she could have become gravely ill and just lingered for a long time uh after she gave birth uh, it's 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 not too significant when she died i mean obviously whether harry was a baby or whether harry was you know fairly young i mean she could her health could have been seriously compromised by giving birth uh and she just lingered for a while uh i mean that still would have been you know, sufficient to uh, for Norman to to blame Harry for uh, like he did for for costing his mother his lot her her life. So, but uh, yeah, it is it is kind of murky, but it's not that important ultimately. In any case, Harry does grow up not getting any attention from a mother, and not enough attention from his father. But Norman tries to make up for it with toys. 
He even buys Harry a shiny new bicycle once, so we find out in a story published last year that Harry was riding the bike one day when some bullies stole it from him. He told his dad, hoping for his dad to help, and his dad went. He got the bike back from the bullies, and they took the bike home, and Harry was all happy that his dad had helped him until his dad bashed the bike to pieces with the crowbar. <laughs> waka, waka, waka. <laughs> Which was awesome. <laughs> well, I say it was awesome. I thought it was awesome. What did y'all think of that story? That was rather douchey of him. <laughs> <laughs> I was hope I was hoping Norman would bash the bullies with the the I think the the, the baseball bat or the crowbar or whatever he had. I was uh, when he grabbed that when he grabbed the kid and pulled him off the bike and the kid is just scared you know shits his pants because he thinks Norman's going to beat the crap out of him, and then uh, then Norman proceeds to bash the bike. I was I was kind of hoping Norman would get in and lick at the bullies, but uh, he didn't. So. And that bike later became Mendel Strom and vowed revenge on Norman Osborn. <laughs> to come. Wow. Well, we do learn that Professor Strom from issue 37 was Norman's partner, and that Norman threw him under the bus when he borrowed money from the corporate accounts. After Strom is in jail, Norman discovers his notes on some new, strange-looking formulas. He plays with these until one solution turns green, What does it mean? What does it mean? and explodes in his face. So this puts him in the hospital for a long time, like weeks, as the best surgeons in the state worked night and day to save his life. But there has been some unhealable brain damage, and they have to wait to see how he recovers. He does eventually leave the hospital, though, because I guess they couldn't keep you for homicidal psychopathy in those days. His mood has definitely soured, and his relationship with Harry, who still looks pretty young at this point, continues to sour as well. The idea of becoming the greatest costume criminal of all time becomes an obsession. And this is something I find a little bit funny because Norman's going, I'm stronger, smarter, tougher than anyone else. And I have all sorts of scientific devices in my chemical company that I can use. Now, any of us, you know, or, or put like Donald Trump in this situation, you know, what would you think? Well, you would think, hmm. You know, I would either try to achieve a lot of political power. Uh, I would go around, maybe start settling all kinds of scores. I would become an even more ruthless and cunning businessman. No, I will dress up in a gaudy green and purple costume and fly around on a bat-shaped glider. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to use all of this amazing wealth and technology at my disposal. Is I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to dress up in a Halloween costume and go beat up a bunch of Italians. So, oh well. What can you say? It was the 1960s. And Italians have it coming. I mean, really. The first panel on page six is like, when you go from like, what can I do? I can become the greatest criminal of all time. Here I am, the green goblin. It's like you spit your drink out. It's like you see. And as we later find out in uh, Death in the Family, he first considered Mr. Coffee. Oh yeah, for some reason. My brother hated he's, like, it, he's like, I need an omen. And then he sees the coffee flying through the window. Of course. <laughs> Criminals are a, ca- a caffeinated lot. <laughs> nice. But but I did like here actually you know like when in, when Paul Jenkins did one of his uh, when he did the story where Norman was trying to brainwash Peter into uh, becoming his heir, and. Uh, Jenkins kind of overwrote part of the story because he had Norman, you know, locked in this house by his dad, and he was imagining this green goblin creature uh, haunting him, and, and therefore that's why he became the green goblin. But here, 
you know, Stan actually has a much simpler, he doesn't explain the goblin thing, but he explains the green thing. And it's basically, I'll make this costume my favorite color, green, <laughs> which I thought was kind of neat. You know, there's no deep, dark psychological, uh, you know, uh, aspect to why it's green. It's just, it's my favorite color. So I'll be the green goblin. The face is perfect. Now to design the rest of the costume, I'll make it my favorite color. Green. <laughs> so I'm picturing like like Norman Osborn like bow legged with like elbows bent like hopping up and down. And now for my costume, da, 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 da. And then like the next costume, I mean, he just looks he just it just looks so comical. I mean, who's going to be afraid of that? You know, the bulging yellow <laughs> eyes, and you know, it's, it's it's this horrifying personality he's come up with, and you know, and there it is. I mean, it's 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 it, it's it's hysterical in its badness, but again, it's it's. <laughs> It's like I was. It's like I'm. I commented though the last time I, I visited you, gentlemen. I mean, we make fun of these stories, but we make fun of them because we love them. I mean, and and even though they are kind of silly, they have stood the test of time, more so than I think most of the stuff that's scripted today will. Even though theoretically it's probably written better, but you know we're not going to be making fun of it in forty years' time because we won't have the same affection for it like we do these old stories. One question that I have is uh, there was a debate I I remember stumbling across on a message board a few years ago on when it became established that uh, the explosion gave Norman Osborn super strength. And he does make the comment here that he's stronger and smarter. But, you know, when he says stronger, that can mean have a few different meanings. And I think the earliest time that i remember them specifically saying that the green goblin uh had super strength was in roger stern's run when the hobgoblin was speculating how osborne went toe-to-toe with spider-man i can do earlier it was in uh, the uh spectaculars number two slash amazing spider-man special number nine because when he pushes harry and the doctor out of the way harry's like his strength I-, I never imagined he was so strong yeah and, and also in that issue uh when he shakes peter's hands peter's saying that he'd break his fingers if it wasn't for his spider strength, and then, la- and then, and then later, and then and then later, and then later when uh, when uh, Peter puts like the the web smoke bomb in the in the fireplace, and then Norman is is throwing furniture around like it was you know paper mache. So it was it was established early on that he had. I mean, it was established fairly early that he had superpowers. But oddly enough, in the who I think it was the who's who of the Mar- of the Marvel universe. That was done like in the 70s or 80s. Um, and it's right up at the Green Goblin. It says that none of the Green Goblins had super strength. So it was there was some inconsistencies over whether or not. But I mean, I think like like Don was saying there, I think it was pretty well established, that, at least in that spectacular Spider-Man number two, that, uh, that Norman did indeed have superpowers. Right. But whether or not I've always believed that he did. I, I mean, I guess we, yeah. we just debated it in his early appearances. But yeah. Josh, you're trying to say that he doesn't hear, right? No, I'm trying to say I'm wondering like when, when it's established. Um, I think this would be uh, – to me, this counts as establishing it. Yeah, and and when it's established that it came from the formula specifically and that you know, he's not just a really fit guy. But I guess a really fit guy wouldn't be able to throw furniture. Well, it depends on just how fit. Yeah. Well, did One t- of the things I never bought, though, was that the and that the formula drove Norman insane. Um, to me, that was nineteen uh, sixties, you know, psycho babble to explain why, you know, Norman was a bad guy one minute and then he wouldn't be a bad guy the next minute. You know how he could be, 
you know, I um, I've always, you know, I, I mean, I've always believed Norman was nuts. The but uh, all, the, all the Goblin formula did was it by giving him the superpowers, it is sent, in effect removed his inhibitions. But I've always believed he was insane. Yeah, um, we actually um, uh, back in, I think last year in Close Air Chronicles, we actually got into a little bit of a discussion because spoilers, like they 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 go on the idea that Norman Osborn was cloned, and since this clone technically wasn't affected by the by the formula that turns into the Green Goblin, he's less apt for insanity and actually fights alongside Spider-Man. And we actually had a discussion whether Norman was a good guy that was turned evil because of the formula or was, if he was always a bad guy. And, and some people, including Brad, thought that he always was a bad guy. He's so always an ass, always, if nothing else. Yeah. I've always thought he was a bad guy. I mean, he's always he, to me, he's obviously always had mental issues and i think the mathis uh established that early on um in norman's childhood when when norman well basically beat the family pet to, pet to death uh <laughs> <What? you know. laughs> well he did i mean uh, basically uh, norman's dad came uh, norman's dad came home drunk and it wasn't specifically said he was drunk. I kind of read that into it. But anyway, he came home crying, saying he was ruined because someone stole all his inventions. And and then, you know, Norman went out and then basically, you know, the family dog came running to him and Norman grabbed a stick and beat it to death. Um, I mean, so the guy is, you know, and, and that's usually one of the uh, one of the um, early, you know, what they say, one of the early marks of uh, psychopaths or sociopaths or serial killers are is cruelty to animals. I mean, it was so, you know, Norman was raised in an abusive household. Uh, so he's always had he's always had issues. I mean, he was uh, he was a crooked businessman. Uh, he. um you know, like I said, he ra- he railroaded Strom. Even though Strom did steal some money, he went ahead and railroaded him so he could get him out of the way and claim credit for all of his uh, all of his patents and inventions sure. and other things. And plus, you know, he was a shitty father. I mean, it's apparent he was always a shitty father. So he wasn't driven insane by the formula. Uh, that was just a very that was just a cop out to try to explain why he was a bad guy, you know, 40 years ago before we really started understanding, you know, mental illness and, and things of that nature. Well, as I said, there's also inconsistencies with his own father. Like, who, I forgot, they gave him more than one name, but like, it was a, it was, wasn't it? I know one story, I think Roger Stern wrote it where his father was like, just a crap. Like, his, Norman Osborne's grandfather or great grandfather was a successful businessman, but Norman's father. Like kind of drove the company to ruin and like took it out on his mom, and then I think Howard Mackey and Paul Jenkins like 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 brought it back where his father was like insane and threw him in the middle of the house for no reason. Like there's there's a lot of like father son um, uh, psycho crap going on. Like, oh yeah, that's, yeah. Let's start with Harry. Yeah. Well, Norman's Norman's father was obviously had issues. Um, you know, like I think Demathas was the first one who actually showed us Norman's father. Um, and, um, but, you know, really in a way, um, even though they say that like a lot of successful business people are psychopaths, uh, they just don't necessarily commit crimes, but they have a very narcissistic singular focus on themselves and their own desires and their, you know, their own needs to the exclusion of everyone else. Um, but you know, not like they said, not all psychopaths commit crimes, but when Norman's father you know, obviously, you know, turned out to be a, a both an alcoholic and a failure. A lot of those, you know, otherwise negative personality traits, you know, 
became even more manifest. So you know the Osborne family has a has a history of uh, have uh, has a history of uh, psychotic behavior and really substance substance abuse and uh, dependency. So we're saying that he's a nice guy until all the drugs. <laughs> no, never was a nice guy. Never was. I think that's a I think I think that's a cop out to say he was a ni- once a nice guy, because it's 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 I think it's a, an oversimplification of uh, of the of the issue. So well. Regardless of how crazy he was at the beginning, um, it took several months. It says many months, which I'm going to translate to a couple of years at least to give Harry a chance to grow up a little bit. To go from explosion in your face, getting out of the hospital, to Green Goblin you know, riding a broomstick. Which, if you look there when he presents his broomstick and says he's going to go after his first victim, Spider-Man, it's the glider. So, Well, he wasn't using the flashback machine yet, so this is his own memory, which might be inaccurate. Oh, uh, Yeah. Or John Romita just didn't read issue fourteen, one or the other. Or maybe he had that, but he decided that the broomstick would, you know, work better for his first mission, which was lower Spider-Man the Hollywood, then hit him on the head with a rock. Right, which is an awesome. Did imagine debut. like um, Romita sitting in the like here's the comic stand, and like stands like like rolls up rolls up in number fourteen. No, 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 like beats him over the head. He had the broomstick, but I already sent it to the presses. Now people will want those rooms back. <laughs> like Stanley remembers what happened in fourteen, right? <laughs> and I, think I mean, if, I guess I guess he does because he because he flashbacks to it. But you know, <laughs> I think if art comes in, uh, it has to be something really really major before they're going to change it because that's a lot of time taken out to change the art. Like vermin and lizard. Yeah, that's the first thing I was thinking. <laughs> Great minds, Joe. So Norman celebrates reaching this part of the story where he's the Green Goblin by putting on his mask while talking to Peter. So he can be all scary and goblin-y. And uh, if you look at uh, page 7, uh, the first panel, Peter decides that while he's bound to that chair, he just can't hold it anymore, so he's going to squeeze one off. Um, <laughs> I like that panel. <laughs> How could you ridicule it? Well, that's what we do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, goblin. <laughs> if I'm going, I'm going to leave behind a little surprise for you. Beg, Parker. Plead for mercy. Uh, no. Uh, so we change scene away from the tense confrontation Haha, <laughs> see what I did there? Tents. To visit Aunt May, who is getting a visit from Anna Watson or Watkins or Abbott or Brandt or whatever her name is. May is all worried because Peter has never stayed out so late without calling. At least not since that one time a few issues ago where she bitched him out for doing just that. Anna suggests calling the Daily Bugle to see if he's just at work, but this doesn't go well. We do get an awesome bit of Jonah dialogue. No, Parker isn't here. What am I supposed to be, a lost and found department? He's probably out stealing hubcaps somewhere. Empty-headed teenagers, they're all alike. Miss Brown, come in here with your notebook. I want to dictate an editorial about how the younger generation is going to the dogs. Then I'll do one about the older generation, too. Might as well blast everyone. (laughs) I love that. That was one of my favorites. (laughs) So after that phone call doesn't go well, Anna tells May not to worry, and she's going to go out to get the poor old junkie some drugs. Speaking of poor old junkies... Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's what she says. She says she's getting overwrought. She needs a sedative. I've got to call Dr. Bromwell. But yeah, poor old junkies. Um, we change scene to a railroad station in the Midwest where Josh Bertoni is contemplating what will await him when he returns to the park. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to read it because it's yeah, a lot of monologuing, but it is you. 
It is me. Yeah, we're Betty Brandt runders. You know, what would happen? Oh, you know, I kind of dropped everything without telling everyone anything and without facing any of the consequences. I wonder what would happen if I go back and face the consequences. Right. Why? Why does the vision of Spider-Man keep reappearing in my brain? And why is Jonas like, (laughs) this isn't early floating heads of guilt, by the way. Like, we've had floating heads of guilt and splash pages before on Ditko stuff, but like, this is the more traditional floating heads of guilt that we later get from Peter. Right. But I I love the Jonah one. He's like a train. Like, you know, like, we do get an ad for reversing baldness. And then after that, Betty Brant finishes up her scene at the train station as the train whistle blows and she's trying to decide whether or not to get on it. And as you probably guessed by now, the pages you've just heard recapped are a typical Marvel device for bringing new readers up to date as painlessly as possible. We just didn't want you to think you'd downloaded a romance comic podcast by mistake. But now face front. <laughs> that was good. That's like perfect Stanley right there. <laughs> face front, it'll be web spinning time before you know it. Now, the Green Goblin pulls out of his ass an invention that I just love. I call for the power of science! (laughs) Oh, no. Comics have this kind of invention in it quite frequently, and I just... I always have to laugh because it's so blatantly impossible. Uh, (laughs) It's a coffee machine. It's a retroscope helmet. It's the Beatles' head. (laughs) It looks like Brainiac, actually. He uses it to project mental images of their previous battles out of his brain onto a wall. Just just call it what it is. It's a flashback machine. It's a flashback machine. Thusly, with the flashback machine, we get a brief recap of the events from issue 14, where the Goblin did escape at the end while Spider-Man was hiding from the Hulk. Issue 17, where Norman says Spider-Man was saved by the torch, and Peter says that as far as he remembers, the goblin ran like a scared rabbit. But Peter is actually lying through his teeth, because that's the issue where he got the call in the middle of the fight that his aunt was in the hospital, so he didn't see how that one ended. Issue 23 was the goblin and the gangsters. That was where the goblin tried to take over Lucky Lobo's mob, but instead the entire mob got arrested, so he had been two successful true believers. (laughs) Beating Spider-Man hadn't really been a goal in that story, so he got out while the getting was good. And finally, the two-part story from issues 26 and 27 where Norman says that the crime master attacking the Green Goblin was what gave Spider-Man the chance to escape. And now through all this, Norman has been emphasizing how his main goal all along has been the destruction of Spider-Man on his way to becoming a great costumed criminal. No. No, no, I'm, I'm just sensing like the final panel on page 11. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Keep it cool. Don't do it. Don't get ahead of me. Almost there. Almost there. Almost there. Go for it. This is this... the man that will engineer the clone saga one day, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not that much of a retcon. It does kind of jive pretty well with what we saw. I mean, even going back to all the way to Amazing Spider-Man 14, uh, he wanted to stop Spider-Man in order to become, you know, a gang leader. And the gang leader aspect of that really was emphasized more, but I, I can take it without it really being a retcon. So after having gotten the entire history of the Green Goblin through Norman's point of view, through, you know, flashback machine brain scans projected on a wall, Spidey has managed to free one of his hands from the inflexible, unstretchable steel cables. But at that moment, the Green Goblin sets him free anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the, 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 the look on that panel really get, 
ladies and gentlemen, the leader of Hammer and the guy who formed the Sinister Twelve. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, this is fail. It looks like the tentacles from a spider uh, spider slayer robot. Yeah. I, I was going to say this later. I want to say it right now. Spider Man Spider Man Blue actually did this better, where Peter like just actually he he's he's tied to a wooden chair. He just like falls back, breaks the wooden chair, and just like leaves off the, the ropes that way. Instead of oh I don't know the goblin letting him go by himself for exactly no reason. Right. You expect me to talk? No, Mister Parker. I expect you to get set free and attack me. Fair and fair. After having gloated for 11 pages that Spider-Man has had his chance to beat the Goblin, it's now too late and that he's going to die. He has changed his mind, evidently. Pete assumes that it's because Norman knew he was about to get loose and wanted to save face, and I'm not really sure who's right on this one. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> right. <laughs> it's fail. No, I just think Stan has been real. Stan just got to the point and said, oh, crap, I've only got eight pages to finish the rest of the story. I'd better get to it, you know, because he's had him just rambling for the last like 10 to 11 pages. And then, oh, wait a minute. I think I'd better end this thing. So there we have this ridiculous, uh, ridiculous uh, plot development. And with the ridiculous plot development uh, or after the ridiculous plot development, the Green Goblin gives Peter a minute to finish costuming up. So Peter takes off his shirt. He unbuckles his belt, slowly unzips his fly, slides his pants around his perfectly... No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) But really, I mean, it is like a little bit weird here that he's like undressing down to his skivvies to uh, fight the goblin, just like, you know, right in front of him. Give me a second. Give me a second. Let me get my gloves on. Okay, let's go. I was like... And there's the green goblin's like screaming, dress, you idiot, dress. (laughs) And it's not that far off from from what, from the actual... Do you hear me? I want to defeat you as I've always fought you as Spider-Man. What is it, the Joker? (laughs) Suffice to say, the next panel, Spidey is suited up and ready to go, but... Then, before the youthful adventurer can make another move, he's hurled back off his feet by the staggering impact of two rapidly tossed stun bombs. The really giant ones that we heard about earlier. And then the final fight between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin begins in earnest. It is a pretty awesome fight, but I always hesitate to go into a blow-by-blow account during the fight, so suffice to say, Spider-Man knocks the Goblin off his glider in mid-flight, so that the glider crash, oh, the broomstick crashes, and then the goblin lands on his face, bringing us to the scene on the cover. Spider-Man wonders if the goblin's been defeated so easily, but Gobby grabs a cable on the floor and lashes it at Spider-Man, shocking him with the current. They keep going until the green goblin grabs hold of his fully automated goblin cannon, which he then begins to manually aim and fire at Spider-Man. Spider-Man dives out of the way and knocks the goblin back, causing him to fall back into a chemical spill and the mess of live wires, the combined reaction of which changes him by sheer chance into Electrochemical Man, complete with the power of wooden tables. Spider-Man approaches the prone body of the Green Goblin cautiously, wondering if he is getting ready for another sneak attack. But when the Goblin doesn't move, Spider-Man kneels beside him, makes sure he still has a pulse, and unmasks him. Norman seems confused about, you know, how Spider-Man's not actually Harry and he needs to go help Harry with his bio-homework, and Spider-Man realizes that he's lost the last few years of his life and that he thinks Harry's still in high school. Now, at first, I was going to lighten to the script for forgetting that Spidey lost his spider-sense last episode, whenever he says, he couldn't fool my spider-sense. It would tingle if I were still in danger. But actually, during the fight, Romita does draw his spider-sense tingling at times, so evidently it's been healed at some point between then and now. Like his uh, cold has been healed. Yes. 
like his code into Node for Christmas. That's why we're starting during the fight. I saw it on the bottom of page 14, the bottom left panel. There's a zik, a sot, and a fatap, and Spider-Man's got the little lions going around his head. So, the, pa- the page before the bat. Yeah, yeah. So, Norman wonders why he's in his costume and mutters about having to help Harry with his bio-homework. And this is a callback to one of the flashback scenes in the origin story right before Norman experimented with Strom Solutions and the explosion. So he seems to have forgotten all the years since that time. Yeah, and he's also forgetting that it wasn't the bio-homework, it was going the parents' night or something. Both of those were in there, although they might have been in, in there at different times. Um, when he was working on the formula, it was going the parents' night. Was nights. it the parents' night? Okay. Okay, so he's... Well, evidently, he's lost even more memory than you think. Somebody forgot, and it was probably Stan. Oh! Uh, Why didn't uh, they just have him, like... It would have been perfect if, like, he was... If he had the flashback machine, like, on his head or something, or, like, he fell into it. That would have made, like... It would have been, like, plausible, and, like... It, the Chekhov's gun was there, that you could have used the flashback machine to make him lose his memory, but no. He got electrical shocked. Well, at that moment, the fire department begins pounding on the door because of the smoke, and... Evidently, there's a fire going on that we haven't actually seen it very clearly until right now. Uh, while they're banging down the door, Spider-Man finds one of Norman's suits in a closet. And in the middle of the fire, I want to remind you, he changes Norman out of the goblin garb and into a suit. This is it's also not- a little weird, by the way, with him taking off Norman's clothes. Yes, he has to basically probably strip him down to his underwear. And, <laughs> and then he has to get a button-down shirt pants, socks, dress shoes, and a jacket on him in what looks like to be the space of, uh, of about 30 seconds. And right. uh, <sighs> I think if he uses that, speed, he would break Norman's arms and wrench him out of sockets and stuff. And that's just kind of creepy. That's just kind of creepy. I mean, it, uh, uh, Spider-Man dress. <laughs> well, if you want to go down to the undressing unconscious people in the Revenge of the Green Goblin story, he... Peter blacks out due to the, you know, goblin toothpaste, and he wakes up in a spider costume, so... Goblin's like, remember when you did this to me? Well, here you go. There's a Superman story where, like, he's woken up and he's undressed, and, like, he doesn't know if Lana did it or his mom did it, and, like, he's really upset at Lana because if she did it, it's, like, really inappropriate because uh, he and Lois are now married. But, like, Lana, like, teases him for a minute and says, relax, it was your mom, and he's like, somehow that's more comforting. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> that that that, well, that was Chuck. <laughs> oh, did my girlfriend undress me or did my mother? This was Chuck Austin, by the way. <laughs> so he throws the green goblin Spider Man throws the green goblin suit into the fire. Which makes me wonder exactly what the costume is made of if he expects it to burn, like without leaving Unstable a trace. Molecules. Unstable. He says cloth, but I always thought it was rubber. And yeah, rubber will burn, but not very quickly. Wait, wait, wait. He says, cl- it has to be rubber. He says, the smoke is so thick, the fabric will be burned to cinders before anyone can see it. And if it were fabric, yes, I would agree with that. But it's not fabric. Okay. Oh, well. <laughs> Leave! <I don't> <laughs> As the Spider-Man- fire is made from super science, so... <laughs> As Spider-Man flees the scene, he shouts to the police and fireman to take Norman Osborn to a hospital. And that he's a hero, having helped Spider-Man defeat the Green Goblin. Spider-Man arrives home seconds later. Yes, seconds later. From the waterfront to his house. That's how long it takes. He must be web-swinging at, like, lightning speed or something. So he goes in an upstairs window, changes clothes, dives back out the window, and goes in the front door. 
as he thinks about female intuition. Right. <laughs> Dr. Bromwell balls him out for being so late without calling and leaves mm-hmm. in a huff. Peter goes in and sits in Aunt May's room for hours until she wakes up. It says that he keeps the vigil, but I'm pretty sure he fell asleep. He reminds us that lying is wrong and then lies to his aunt, cooking up a story about studying late with a classmate losing track of time. She notices that he's flushed and feverish and bundles him into bed so that she can dote and dawdle him to her heart's content. And in an expensive hospital room on the fashionable east side of Manhattan, a father and son seem to find each other again. As though after an absence of many long, now-forgotten years. I can't remember what happened, son. These past few years seem to be forever buried, forever lost to me. But the future lies ahead, and it will be a good one for both of us. Somehow, I know that now. And and, and both Osbournes had some very good years ahead of them, and nothing bad ever happened to that family again. Right. Cut to 122, cut to Next issue, don't miss Peter Parker's startling decision, plus an all-new, fantastically powerful super foe for Spidey. Nuff said. So what um, did happen in issue number 41? Number 42 was, uh, was uh, he Super got a bike. John James, right? Yes. What was that? He, he, he got a bike. That was his startling decision. Oh, okay. He got a two-wheeler. Ooh. He's a big boy. Yeah, 42 is John Jameson with Mary Jane in the last panel, and then 43 is uh, another Rhino story. I think next issue is also a uh, first uh, headband for Gwen. What? No, it isn't. I, I uh, think it's Rhino. Yeah, Rhino in issue 41 and 43. No, at, the end, at the end of 41, Gwen saw the various... You won't see the headband until after Mary Jane appears. No, you see the headband before you see Mary Jane. No, I'm, I'm positive she, she changes her hair before then. I, I, I'm, I'm opening the book right now. Hold on. Let's do it. I don't see any Gwen. I'm looking through the book. positive. It's not until like... Uh, no, there is until... no headband. She still has little uh, bang, uh, fringe clips on the corners of her forehead. She, for even issues, she, she doesn't have her hair like that. Hold on. I'm looking for her. Um, okay, yeah, you're right. Not this. She gets the headband. Maybe it's in 42. No, it's, 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 it is 42. It's, it is 42 uh, before we meet Mary Jane. She gets the headband. When you get when you get the headband, it's after her hair is straightened out. And that... Nope. 42, she's wearing the headband. Oh shit! Let her see. <laughs> She's inviting Peter to a party. Yeah, because this is when Harry Osborn like walks off with Gwen, and Peter's like, "Ha ha, Harry Osborn's got your gal." We have given <laughs> so much time to her hair over the years. Yeah, she's oh, like crap, the Jennifer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn you, Y'all were both positive, and y'all are both positively wrong. Yeah, I knew I that she got it or, I, earlier than that, but you know, I, I probably wouldn't have bet my life on issue forty-one. So I'm curious whether future revisits of the Goblin origin pay any attention at all to Professor Strom. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty established. Um, and Jr. Uh-huh. could could back me up or uh, contradict me if I'm wrong that Professor Strom is the creator of the Goblin formula. Oh, and he's a recurring character, isn't he? He doesn't actually die in forty in thirty seven. Yeah, he, he comes back. Dies. He's alive now. He's on he's on a disc drive like somewhere in Peter's apartment to this very yeah. day. Well, actually, he uh, uh, um, in that dreadful, dreadful uh, penance miniseries, Strom apparently came back. I, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. He was like uh, reduced to uh, uh, data patterns or something on a hard drive. But then, uh, when they, um, after uh, Norman became the head of the Thunderbolts, and they turned Speedball into penance, 
uh, speedball or penance went looking for um, Nitro, the guy who blew up Stanford, and uh, in the during the during the time he he ran across Strom again, who was back in his human form. So, but that was such a yeah. Yeah. So, but I didn't read the whole idea, or I should say, I didn't burn steel the whole thing, so I didn't know how they explained it. But uh, yeah, they probably was, uh, didn't. Probably not. So, but, but yeah, Strom is an established part of Norman's. I mean, yeah, a lot of times when they retell the origin, they always uh, they they mention about him him booting Strom out of the country and then finding or the company and then finding Strom's notes. So he was in the '90s show and he was in the Spider-Man movie. Yep. Oh, that's right. He was in the Spider-Man movie. Yep. We have to take the KX. whole line back to formula. Interesting. And then they Norman figured out in the Osborne Journal that uh, Strom had taken the formula himself, so that it, because Norman survived like death by the formula, then Strom was probably still alive too. So he was like a decomposed corpse that was. That, that was after that was that was made after the appearance of Gaunt, right? Yeah, it was made after the appearance of Gaunt. Right. I, I remember that when. I, and uh yeah but and like 90 percent of the osborne journal has been contradicted (laughs) pages of him like talking about how his son harry is dead and aunt may's dead and he and Harry was his only son and peter and mary jane are married and how dare mary jane marry someone that isn't her son you know stuff like it's all the journal doesn't make sense now not even a little bit maybe a little bit I said not even a, not even a little bit, and I said maybe a little bit. Yeah, no, I like, said not even. Like I'm right and you're wrong. Oh, no. okay, got it. Okay, <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I thought you were asking me a question. <laughs> no, no, no. So I know that we kind of did a whole lot of overall discussion when we were talking about 39, but what do we think of this resolution to the cliffhanger to the story in issue 40? I, I, they can do it at at this time period. The way that storytelling is. Yeah. I, I actually know JR. JR doesn't really care, really doesn't like the whole amnesia thing. Am I correct? Well, it was um, it was a convenient plot device because they didn't know what else to do with the character. But it was probably the only way they could have done it back in the 1960s because obviously Stan didn't want to put him in jail. But he couldn't, you know, he couldn't possibly conceive of Norman knowing Spider-Man's secret identity and not doing something about it. So he had to have Norman conveniently forget. So, but you know, no, I wasn't a big fan of the amnesia plot. But when you think about it, they didn't use it all that often. I mean, they, you know, basically they had him forget two more times and then they killed him off. So it wasn't, um, you know, it was pretty lame plot device. But then again, it was a plot device that was probably entirely logical in, in you know, in the '60s and '70s. So I'd hate to see him do it again. But uh, I was just annoyed when they did it with Harry, though. I mean, I, I thought I was alright with Norman, but like Harry's like, oh, I forgot everything. Like, like after the Bart Hamilton storyline, he's like, what's going on, Spider-Man? And I was like, you've got to kid me by this point. You can't mm-hmm. seriously see that he has now, I, issue number forty. I, I you know, the whole, uh, the whole, um, the ret- rotoscope memory helmet, or the, you know, that was. I, I remember reading. I thought this has got to be one of the stupidest things I have ever seen. Oh, you uh, haven't seen. Yeah. You haven't seen the height of that device's stupidity. <laughs> you mean it makes another appearance? Yes, in other media. Don, you oh, want to take this? I just remember that. <laughs> Where else did it appear? Or a in. 
In the 1980s Spider-Man animated series, <laughs> the, the episode with the Green Goblin, uh, Peter like goes through Osborne's lab and he sees the machine and he remembers it from this story and he's and he hooks it up to himself and he's like, oh, this is the time when this happened with me and this is when this happened. And then like at one point, like he sees him and Norman fighting and then like Spider-Man falling and Peter says, that's funny. I don't remember this happening. And then Osborne comes up behind him and says, because it hasn't happened yet. And then they have a fight, and then that moment happens later in the episode that the flashback machine foretold. So apparently the flashback machine can also tell the future. Awesome. And this was in the the other animated (laughs) series of the 80s that wasn't Amazing Friends? Right, the one where Betty Brant... Yeah, where Betty Brant, like, throughout that episode, demands that Peter get her a Halloween present. (laughs) I vaguely remember that one. That was uh, I, I I don't hardly think that uh, that series was uh, was seen very very um, I think it was syndicated but I don't know that it's uh, a whole lot of people have seen that I haven't seen hardly any of those episodes maybe no more than two or three of them. So. There was a cassette. I actually first saw that episode like running it from Blockbuster years ago. Right, right. That's when I, that's when I first saw it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I I, I just. It, you know the, the the whole story, and the story kind of had a ridiculous resolution. You know, having him forget and everything is all right with the world. Uh, it, it's almost a, a far too neat, far too pat uh, ending. But then again, I, I like I said before, I'm looking at looking at it. You know, forty years. You know, forty years later. You know, it it, it wasn't quite as memorable as issue number thirty nine. So uh, that's about all I can say about it. I say it's it's not as memorable, but. Uh... There are several things for me personally that kind of make it in, as entertaining. Well, the flashlight machine is just stupid. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to like give it the grace of swear words to explicate how dumb that is. But uh, but assuming I, getting past that for a second and just looking at the fact that they're doing flashbacks to tie together the goblins' history, do you think that needed to be done? No. <laughs> no. But it, it doesn't hurt. I don't think. I guess Peter remembers fighting him, and then he's like, look at this, you beat me here, but you won't beat me here, but you did beat me here, but you won't beat me today, and then this time, you did beat me, but... Maybe it's another new reader. He makes that like five times, and it's just like, stop stalling and kill him, for Christ's sake. It was probably, if we read, if we went back and read all kinds of stuff from, from that era, there'd probably be, there'd probably be a whole lot of similar absurdities, so... You know, it, it probably you know for the r- r- relative to the times, it probably wasn't any more ludicrous than anything else. When um, Betty Brandt is at the train station and the radio saying that like Spider-Man's been missing for days, no, he he just fought people <laughs> on, at an observatory. The Goblin has only had him kidnapped for maybe an hour at the most. Right. It has not been days. So it's late at night on the you know, on the day that she was captured. Yeah. While we're uh, talking about Betty Brant, <laughs> in the last issue, I think we mentioned how Romeo tried to ape the uh, imagery of Dicko a little bit. But on page uh, nine, top panel, top left panel, that image of Betty Brant is so Romita, like so romance comics slash classic Spider-Man Romita style of what, just the way he draws that woman. To me, I think it's, it just it's if if you want, it's just so. Um, representative of a style that I really I really adore it even though it, it includes Betty Brandt. You're talking about like the really <laughs> wistful panel, right? Where she like has the, the glove cheek on her the glove hand on her cheek, I do declare. It's almost like Mary Tyler Moore, but uh that one that, I wouldn't be surprised if they use Mary Tyler Moore as a model for Betty Brandt sometimes. As opposed 
flow time. This definitely looks like Dick Van Dyke era Laura Petri. When did the Dick Van Dyke show start? I have no idea. Well, if we look at Wikipedia, which is always right, you're never wrong. 1961 is when that... And it was almost done. It had run it pretty much its entire course by this point. It ended okay. in June of 66. So it's not out of bounds to suspect that there could be a little bit of Laura Petri going on here. Real quick, I, I like the family guy joke where they censor shit and they censor out Dick Van Dyke. Like, bleep, Van, bleep. Why, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, speaking of the Strom thing, I think that the timeline is a little off here for Strom's imprisonment because wasn't it established in 37 and, like, they reestablished it in the Osborne Journal and stuff, too, that he was in jail for something like nine years, maybe? Yeah, like ten years. Yeah, the way that they have it presented here is that, like, Strom was imprisoned at one point while Harry was in, like, middle school or high school. Right. And it's not directly contradicted. Norman can just be telling the story out of order. But it does, like, mean that Norman would have had to have discovered Strom's notes in his desk, like, years after Strom was already imprisoned. Like, he's now just getting around to, like, looking at these notes. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that that's how one of the origin stories uh, played it. Because I remember one story where it's like, and years later, I searched through Strom's desk and finally found these notes. Whereas in the minus one story that uh, had the infamous proto-goblin, uh, Norman finds Strom's notes. Uh, well, wait a minute. See how, you know, that, that would be years later, wouldn't it? Because it was at the fight with the proto-goblin that's, that, he found, uh, that he found Strom's notes. So mm, now I'm confused. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, well, Strom had, it, it's like the Death Star plans, you know, uh, it, it, for those who don't know, like, there's so many stories about how the Rebels obtained the Death Star plans that, like, it was retconned that there was just, like, different versions of it lying around. Strom had, like, his notes, like, it was kind of like golden tickets, like, Norman kept on finding, like, pages of Strom's notes. <laughs> Only one of those stories is canon, though. Uh, are you talking about Star Wars or uh, Norman? That's not Star Wars, but not really. No. Everything is <laughs> together in the Star Wars continuity. Yeah. Star Wars, almost everything is canon, unless you're one of those like diehard movie people that say that nothing is canon. But like, it's if you ever look, if you ever want to have fun, look up how many people got the Death Star plans for the Rebels in uh, Star Wars Expanding Universe continuity. It's really confusing. And of course, we know that Lucas had a single solitary plan for all of the Star Wars saga from beginning to end, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Obligatory comment from me. I'm really kind of mad at Peter here, and to a lesser extent, Betty, because Peter, in the last page, thinks about Betty's female intuition, which made her leave, and he says, She must have felt that I'd bring nothing but heartache to those that I love. And I really, really hate it when Peter takes the blame for this relationship. Well, you're reading the wrong book, brother. Yeah, I know. I know. And I'm really mad that, like, for all these years, Betty has let him take the blame for it. It's all <laughs> Peter's fault and Peter's secret. Well, I don't like I – I mentioned it off the of, uh, of mind, but I don't like Bromwell completely throwing Parker under the bus saying, um, I don't know <laughs> you'd be so unfeeling, so wrapped up in only yourself. Like, ever since I first read that – I was like, you dick. Like, like, do you have any, you don't even know what he's been doing. Like, I was like, I know the irony. I know, I'm not, I know the irony, but it's just like him assuming that Peter was like, like either playing basketball or smoking weed or something like that. Like, just really upset me. Like, you know, you know, he's a good person. Why do you assume the worst? Just because 
oh, he happened to be out. I mean, it's not like he was gone for like 12 hours. He's probably gone for like maybe three hours or something. Well, and, and it's also like no teenager has ever stayed out late without informing their parents where they were. You know, I again, this gets to the point where, you know, I wonder how much experience Stan actually had. I know, I know he had a daughter, and she was probably an older child at this point in time, but Bromwell's going, what? You know, it was the worst thing in the world he could have done. Stayed <laughs> out late without calling. I mean, of all of all the trouble that teenagers get into and can get into and historically have always gotten into, you know, Peter stays out late without calling and therefore he's 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 owed this dressing down by the doctor and and it just gets to, you know, Aunt May the fragility of Aunt May's condition, which is just so overplayed and overstated that I guess as as one of you just pointed out earlier, people were writing letters even then, you know, tired of the old bitty and wanting her wanting her to die. So And for that panel where she's like, she's like starts crying on page seven just like really irritates me because Okay, I know they don't have cell phones or back then, but still, it's like she looks like she she looks like she she's worried if he's like in the hospital or something like that. And I know she is, but man, she just I, wants attention. And and I, I and I won't give it to her. She's like, I gotta go out of here and get some air. On <laughs> honest Esther, even my Mary Jane has come home late occasionally. My Mary Jane like comes home late. This is uh, the daughter that belongs to me. Yeah, it really makes it like hard to swallow that retcon years later that Mary Jane was not living with Anna during these there during this time period at all. Like if you read Parallel Lives, like she moves into Anna's house for like maybe a week before she meets Peter, and then like by that weekend she had had her own apartment. Mm, that's right. Like the the way that it's written in Parallel Lives, uh, she shows up at uh Anna Watson's house, like, with suitcases unexpectedly after having a fight with her sister, saying, hey, I'm going to live in New York now. I'll have my own apartment by the end of the week. And Anna's like, in that case, you're going to come with me to meet Peter to meet Peter and Aunt May on Sunday. And she's like, okay. So you got to think that this is either before then, and unless everything between this issue and issue 42 happens in the span of a week. I don't know. So for, like, the two days that Mary Jane's lived with Anna Watson, she's come home late occasionally. I had a note on uh, the infamous Peter taking taking a dump panel, which John loves so much. I actually really, I guess I like that panel because to me it's like in this sort of quasi oh Marvel does do it does everything realistic era. Like you have Peter faced with the, faced with the, the concept that he's not going to win this one and going to be killed, and his identity revealed to everybody. And I like how I like how it's drawn because he's sort of like thinking to himself, kind of like. Say I don't really mind dying, but just to not explain to my aunt May, never see Betty Brant. I think that's the first time you really see him faced with his own mortality, and I really, really enjoy that, especially from John Romita. And um, lastly, I was going to ask Jr. But when we were when we were talking about Norman's uh, psychology, how he probably wasn't <laughs> that hot of a guy uh, before the uh, explosion in the face, but when he's under the uh, amnesia. Does it make sense to anybody that amnesia also changes someone's personality to, to like, because he knows who he is. He just doesn't remember the last few events. Well, so, I, I don't it, think the amnesia changed Norman's personality. I think the uh, electrical shock changed Norman's personality. That's why he was kind of a nice guy afterwards. I mean, basically, the, you know, the guy just, uh, I mean, I, I, but yeah, I mean, the guy received a serious shock, so it probably rewired his brain in certain instances, in certain cases. So I don't, you know, I mean, 
they used to use they used to use shock therapy to try to cure people of mental illness back in well hell even I was just thinking Sergeant Shriver recently died he received a, a electroshock treatment back in the late 60s and early 70s for depression so uh, that that's what I attributed the the personality change to was the uh, that massive shock that Norman received you know it it really didn't revert him to his old personality it it literally did change his personality until after after a while then that uh, that shock finally wore off and and Norman's personality finally fully reemerged it's really confusing to me just the, all this back and forth I mean we really don't like like everybody knows, you don't really get a certain fix on the guy until Peter Parker seventy five, where he just comes back and says, "Ah, oh, I've been alive." Well, you know, they, uh, I mean, they killed off Norman, you know, in the early 70s before, I mean, and, and, and even then, you know, I mean, obviously Stan's been writing all up to this time, and of course, we, you know, as much fun as we've been having, we, we understand how, how clued Stan was in the human nature, and then, uh, you know, Jerry Conway was 19 or 20 years old when he wrote The Death of Gwen and The, the Death of Norman, uh, you know, and it's been, it's been 30-something years, I mean, so... Uh, we re- you know, the, the writers really didn't have a handle on mental illness or what, you know, things would drive people. I mean, he- heroes and villains' motivations were pretty black and white back in those days. And, you know, le- now with, with, you know, more mature writing and more complex writing and, you know, more understanding of this, the si- psychology of disturbed individuals, you know, we can get into, you know, I guess, shades of gray and, and you know, probe deeper into their personalities. Uh, but, you know, back then it was, you know, you know, I mean, like you said, the guy gets all these special powers and, and, you know, money and technology and what's he wants to do. He wants to dress up in a green and purple costume with a purple purse, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it was, it, it was what it was. So well, it's also like real quick, like this is the, this is the first legitimately maniacal, like insane as in has mental problems, Super villain that Spider-Man has gone up against. Other guys are just either in it for the money, or in it in the name of science, like Doctor Octopus. Which, so I, I think always, that, I always thought Doctor Octopus was was mental too. Although I guess we really, I guess that was something that maybe they didn't really delve into until until later writers. But uh, I always thought Doctor Octopus was more mental than Norman, because uh, you know his uh, the fact that Doctor Octopus. You know, I wouldn't say fell in love with Aunt May. I think that's a little bit too creepy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously, May represented something that he felt he didn't have growing up. So I always thought, you know, Ock always had he had more issues than Norman. I mean, Ock obviously had mother issues and and uh, you know, real real serious problems relating to other people. Uh, that Norman, I mean, Norman had his own issues with women, but uh, he didn't. He, I don't think he was near as disturbed as <laughs> Doctor Octopus was. That right. sounds like an idea for an article. <laughs> I, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I only had all the time in the world. Aunt May and Doctor Octopus in eight arms to hold you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is you know Conway. I mean, it, it's it's one of the most it's one of the the stupidest Spider-Man stories ever told. The uh, Aunt May and Doctor Octopus wedding because it's like oh you just it's like so creepy. What in the world is the honeymoon going to be like? You know. Uh, <laughs> remember <laughs> Doctor Bromwell. It was played for I laughs know. though, wasn't it? I mean, I don't remember exactly because it's been a while since I've read it, but wasn't it all played for laughs? No. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. It really wasn't played. She I, inherited I, a nuclear island. Exactly. Well, that exactly. sounds to me like laughs. 
No, it's very, very, very scientific and serious. It was as serious as a 20-year-old writing in the early 1970s could make it. So it's a completely complacent with the idea too, just as she was with uh, the mole man a few daily strips ago, yeah. which yeah. irritated me. Well, one thing Aunt that May. bothered me about that Aunt May Mary's Doctor Octopus story, and it's been a while since I've read it, but like we don't see like how it happened. Like all of a sudden, like they're getting married. Aunt May doesn't really have much to say the whole story except for oh, what's going on? Like we don't see the proposal. We don't see Aunt May saying like oh, I can't get married without my Peter. Just like all of a sudden. <laughs> They're walking down the aisle together. I was about to say, if she needs her Peter, she probably could go buy one somewhere or whatever with the and with batteries. Oh, oh, I, I never get married without my Peter. I'll just say that. Yeah, and then like you know, after she's rescued, she faints a lot, and then like the very next issues, she's going about her life as if you know nothing happened. I mean, for all intents and purposes, she was engaged to some guy. And on her nuclear island, and then he exploded. He's dead now, you know, the guy that she almost married. And she's going about life as if everything's normal. The thing that makes her freak out is seeing Gwen Stacy again. Wasn't well, that, isn't that back to our theory that Aunt May is a futurized version of Betty Brandt? Could be. Betty Brandt notes that Spider Man is a costume adventure that Peter admires. Wasn't one of your most recent fights with him where you didn't show up to his graduation because you thought that Peter was trying to kill Spider Man with J. Jonah Jameson? Nice. So, you know, yay for consistency, especially when it involves Betty Brandt. It's a good thing that we have the same writer writing both those stories. I know, right? Unless. Well, let's uh, let's see what else was in the book. We do have an ad this month for more Marvel masterpieces. The Fantastic Four, number 54, is where the Torch suddenly remembers how much he's in love with Crystal. And so he flies off to save her from the Inhumans. And by that, I mean kidnap her from her family. Okay. Oh, uh, the barrier is broken at this point. Yeah, uh, it broke oh, okay. before. Uh, it broke before the Galactus story, didn't it? I thought that. I thought that it went up before the Galactus. No, story. no, no. This is um. This is where he begins the search to get to Crystal. I think he starts using the dog and Wyatt Wingfoot or something. I forget exactly how. it Okay, because like they don't like. She doesn't get out of the barrier until like later on. Because like when she's looking for Johnny, she like shows up at a Metro College game where Peter's there with Mary Jane. Right, that- we're gonna get to that. That's Fantastic Four sixty one. So we're gonna um, talk about that. This is the cover that has been uh, Johnny Storm flying up the middle of the cover and little inhuman heads all around the border. So I believe this is where that that plot line of him going to get Crystal back starts. Got it. Uh, we also have Fantasy Masterpieces number four, which has some Golden Age Captain America stories, plus some other random stories from 1960 to 1962. And Marvel Tales 4, which has now gone bi-monthly and reprints The Return of the Vulture from Amazing Spider-Man 7, plus a Human Torch story from Strange Tales, a Thor story from Journey to Mystery, and an Ant-Man story from Tales to Astonish. That was actually my favorite of the two Vulture stories. But anyways, then we have the Marvel Bullpen Bulletins page, which gives us capricious commentaries carefully cooked up to confuse and confound you. There are two points of interest on here. Basically, they remind us of the annuals, which uh, two of those were out by now. And they remind us that there are you know four more coming over the next two months. And again, we're going to talk about the Spider-Man annual next episode. And also, it says the wrap-up next ish on this page will announce the result of our poll in which we asked you whether or not we should continue to rib brand deck or ignore them completely from now on. Also, we'll have additional nutty news and notes from the far corners of Marveldom. So uh, the whole fight about whether or not they're going to make fun of DC is going to come to a head next issue. Watch it be like like a total non-event. And um, 
then we get to uh, buy some Marvel clothes, and then in the spider's web, Alan Friedenthal of Bayside, New York, gets the prize for writing the first letter to correctly guess that Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin. He guessed it? He guessed it, but it's not really that hard because issue 37 was already out when he wrote in. So uh, I think by issue 37, it's pretty easy to deduce from the ending there that Norman's the Green Goblin, if you put all your clues in the right place. Michael Brisk writes that he had just read in TV Guide that producers Robert Lawrence and Stephen Krantz now have the rights to Spider-Man, Captain America, The Submariner, The Hulk, and Thor. So those TV projects are coming soon down the pike. And with 40 issues of Amazing Spider-Man down, if there have been no delays since this recording, there are 615 to go, which means we're about 6% of the way through the Amazing Spider-Man series for all of you keeping track at home. We're catching up! Catching up! And I want to close by saying again, thank you very much to J.R. Fettinger for being with us here tonight. Thank you for having me again. It's good to know I didn't wear out my welcome the last time. Nope. The, uh, the goblin suit still suits you just fine. <laughs> no, it, no, it's always great to have you, Jr. for sure. It's always good to good to appear. So uh, it's uh, always always enjoy it. Uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Uh, and maybe if everything works out, we'll uh, we'll try to make that happen with Spectacular Spider-Man Two, which is uh, quite a little ways down the road. But it's the next big Green Goblin story, and that'll be fun because there's lots of drugs and uh, hallucinations in that one. So everybody, bring your hookah, and uh, we'll have a good time with that issue. Meanwhile, next episode, as you heard in the promo in the middle of this episode, we are kicking off our second year here at Amazing Spider-Man Classics with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. After that, we'll be continuing on with Amazing Spider-Man 41, The Avengers Annual, the first appearance of Mary Jane in 42 and 43, and lots of other good things to come in upcoming episodes. We are excited about starting a second year. We hope that you are continuing to enjoy the show and that you keep listening and spreading the word. If you have a podcast that plays promos for other shows and would like a copy of the promo you heard in the middle of this episode, do please give an email. I will be sending that out, or you can download it off the iTunes feed. Any uh, promotion of the show, of course, would be very, very much appreciated. And if I'm aware of it, I will likewise mention your show on here in return. I am firmly of the opinion that the only way we podcasters can keep our shows going is to help each other out and spread the word for one another. And that wraps us up for this episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics. I want to thank JR again for being on the show with us to look at Green Goblin and Norman Osborn in all of his glory. If you want to write into the show and tell us what you thought, you can do so at AmazingSpidermanClassics at gmail.com. We haven't had a whole lot of email read on the show lately, but we do have an episode already recorded coming up where there will be much email read, and we'll be continuing to make that a more regular part of the show. You can also contact the show by going to our website, AmazingSpiderMan.Libson.com. You can download episodes directly from there. You can also leave comments on the show postings. You can also click the Facebook link and like us on Facebook. There you will get notices of new episodes as they are released or delays of episodes as they are delayed, like this one was. I got it out a couple days later than I wanted to just because of everything that was going on in my life. You know, I seem to have a problem of always missing the expected release of an episode by a day or two, so I apologize for that. It's just I tend to procrastinate and then things come up at the last minute, so I 
we'll try to do better about that. I'm going to try to get the next episode edited way ahead of time so that it can be sitting there ready and waiting for release date. And until that time, I do thank you as always for listening to Amazing Spider-Man Classics in association with SpiderManCrawlspace.com. My name is John Wilson. Good night. I'm going to trade rooms, so give me just one second. My wife is going to bed, which means I'm no longer in the bedroom. I'm going into the other room, and aren't y'all glad that you're no longer in my bedroom? I don't know. I kind of like it in here. It feels safe. <laughs> he says my bedroom's safe. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and the handcuffs and everything in the letter. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how I know that, like, if any bad guys come, John will know how to take care of them. <laughs> I got the mad skills. Like Catwoman, he'll just, like, whip them away. Sick of Makate. Scratch out their eyes. So, Twin Towers on the cover of 39, by the way. I didn't realize that when we were looking at it before. Um, neither did I. Well, I was going back and forth whenever JR was talking about the bookends, and it really does. And there's a nice triangular shape if you put 39 and 40 um, right next to each other. When were the Twin Towers built? Before 1966. I don't remember when they were built. Um, I was thinking they didn't come online until the early 70s. That's but, what I uh, thought. I could be wrong because I, I remember they first the, the first time I heard about the Twin Towers was when uh, it was uh, they were used as the climax to um, the remake of King Kong, where instead of climbing up the Empire State Building, he took Jessica Lang up to the uh, the top of the World Trade Center. You are totally right. They were not even built at this point. That is some other consecutive buildings that look the same. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. That's not the twin towers. Never mind. They they don't look tall enough anyway. <coughs> and they don't have the right shape. Now that I'm looking at a picture of the twin towers, so I will just leave all that out because there's no need to go there. Hey, John. Empire State University isn't real. And Sally Avril is dead. I know. It's okay. Still dead. Still dead. And there are two points of interest that I wanted to bring up. Actually, no, in the interest of time, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind.